The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior, and I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats, and since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. William Shakespeare, As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7. And so true. Life often feels like a big game, doesn't it? Like we're putting on a show for some celestial audience. William Shakespeare said that over four centuries ago. He lived from 1564 to 1616, and man, did that dude leave a legacy behind. One that has survived and influenced everything and everyone from future playwrights, authors, people who write for TV and movies and more for over 400 years. His words continue to help all of us understand the human condition to this day, to realize that while our world has improved tremendously when it comes to industry, medicine, technology, and more, it's changed in so many ways. We are still, in a lot of ways, no different from many of Shakespeare's characters. We still have ambition that gets us into trouble, unrequited romance that emotionally leaves us gutted. We still have people we thought were our friends who betray us and on and on. Shakespeare captured the universal human experience so very well and thus his words still ring true today. And they still will a thousand years from now. Shakespeare is considered England's national poet and one of the greatest playwrights and authors of all time. Many of us probably associate Shakespeare mostly with high school memories of reading plays out loud in class and poorly written essays we wrote the night before, and most of us probably did not ever spend any time trying to get to know Shakespeare the man. Shakespeare was a country boy in the small yet bustling town of Stratford-upon-Avon. He received a standard education and never attended university. He got married at the age of 18, and after the birth of his twins, he disappeared from the historical records for seven long years, and then re-emerged in the London theater scene as both an actor and playwright, an incredibly talented superstar in the making. Soon after his reemergence, Shakespeare became a shareholder in an acting company known as Lord Chamberlain's Men, later renamed the King's Men. With Shakespeare's plays and some of London's most popular actors, the Lord Chamberlain's Men became the most successful, uh, one of the most successful, if not the most successful, companies of its day. Audiences were captivated by Shakespeare's tragedies, histories, and comedies that artfully captured the struggle of the human condition, romance, war, politics, betrayal family conflict, vaulting ambition, and so much more. Shakespeare was a beloved figure, well-known to many in London and the surrounding areas in his life, and his popularity has only soared in his death, since his death. He's long been one of the most recognizable names in the world, thanks largely to his friends putting together the first folio, a collection of his plays. 
Without that, we might not have any copies of Shakespeare's plays today, which is insane to think about. His works could have easily been lost to history, just like so much of his actual life was. We know so little about William Shakespeare, the man, but uh, so much so that some scholars uh, actually don't think he was a real person. They think that some Elizabethan contemporary uh, wrote the plays and poems we attribute now to Shakespeare and took on a pen name to hide their identity for various reasons, depending on the suspected real author. This week, I will share what we do know about the life of William Shakespeare and some of his most famous works. We'll meet some of his contemporaries, a few friends and rivals, and discuss the anti-Stratfordian theory, the theory that William did not write his plays. And also, and you're not going to find this almost anywhere else other than here, some true crime speculation. Was William Shakespeare, was he a serial killer known as Billy Shakes? All this and more in another literary How much did William Shakespeare influence the stories we continue to create and consume today in the very language us English speakers use to make and manage our lives edition of Time Suck? This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Well, happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Dick Quest's meth dealer, Jerry Brudos' shoe cobbler, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, good boy Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. And if I, uh, you know, have a little uh, awkward pauses in today's show, I just have one of those uh, little head colds. It's not that big of a deal, but it just makes you feel a little spacey, almost like you're a little bit high all the time. So, So that's where I'm at right now. I don't feel that bad. Just uh, just a little bit foggy. But I think we're going to have a fun show, nonetheless. Uh, I got some cool new free stuff I want to announce at the start of the show. Who doesn't like free stuff? And then we're off into the bulk of the show. Uh, starting off with excited to bring back an old favorite, uh, something that we missed last year, something I really missed uh, doing the tw- 2023 Bad Magic Street Team. Street Team is back. Let's get some fucking stickers stuck all over the place. Stickers are going to be available on Wednesday, August 2nd, noon Pacific time. We'll have 500 packs of 10 available to ship out, and the sticker packs are free. You only have to pay for shipping. And since they're free, please uh, limit your purchase to one pack so more of you can get in on the fun. We're not going to do more than 500 packs this year. Hopefully, they'll be gone pretty quick, and they'll be available at badmagicmerch.com Wednesday, August 2nd, at noon Pacific time. Stick them all over the place, uh, you know, uh, wherever you feel comfortable, on your forehead, your neighbor's forehead, uh, your butthole. Your neighbor's butthole, uh, that cool spot in the record shop bathroom where everyone puts stickers, uh, somebody's butthole in that bathroom. <laughs> I remember in past years uh, finding them on hiking trails, ski lifts, rest stop stalls, fucking garbage cans out in sidewalks, wherever, just all over the place. It was super fun. And then post pics of where you put the stickers. Get creative. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, uh, little videos, static images, whatever. And then hashtag it with Bad Magic Street Team so we can find it. And you can tag us in the photos. Uh, thanks for uh, helping us get the word out about our show. It's about time we started to, uh, you know, try to uh, grow again. Been too long. Been going week to week for too long here. Uh, the contest will last October 2nd, noon Pacific time. And we'll look up posts based on the hashtag in October. And the winner, who we, uh, whoever we think did the best job putting stickers all over the place, is going to get $200 in a badmagicmerch.com store credit. And then mark your calendar Sunday, August 27th at 4 p.m., the debut of my newest stand-up special, Trying to Get Better. Recorded back in Minneapolis this past December, finally releasing it, uh, releasing it as is the current trend for most comics for free. 
on YouTube. We self-produced it. Thankfully, actually own this thing so I can post clips on socials later and not get fucking trademark and copyright strikes on my own shit. Um, I'll be there in the comment uh, feed for the initial release on August 27th, that Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Hopefully uh, watching it along uh, with a lot of you. Hope you like it. If you do like it, please just tell your friends to also watch it. I had a great time doing it. My buddy Mike O'Dare directed it. I think he did an awesome job and I'm proud of how it turned out. If you don't like it, I am just not fucking capable of making you laugh because it's uh, it's the best I can do. Again, Sunday, August 27th, 4 p.m. on the Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel, the new special, Trying to Get Better, about an hour and 20 minutes long. And then I'll be working on new material in Spokane at the Spokane Comedy Club this weekend, August 4th and 5th. And now one more cool free thing happened at the end of this episode. Free professional advice. Not advice from me. Professional mental health advice that I'm just relaying. Just the messenger. Uh, Since this show started and thanks to the vocal community that uh, has grown up around it, I've become an advocate for mental health. Gone back to what I uh, used to study. uh, Psychology. It's something each and every one of us deals with. I often don't feel qualified to give the right advice though. But recently I was lucky enough to be able to partner with BetterHelp for an occasional special edition of Time Sucker Updates where I'll share some insight and advice given to me to give to you by a licensed therapist. And all of this advice is based on questions we receive from many of you meat sacks. So thank you for sharing what you were curious about. And again, that will be after today's story at the end of the episode. Right now, let us uh, uh, get theatrical. We simply must head to the theater post haste. So how am I laying out today's show? Uh, For our first order of infotainment business, we'll talk about the theatrical world of Shakespeare's day and place, the Elizabethan theater. After that, I'll present a brief overview of Shakespeare's famous writing style, a full timeline of what we know about his life, including some very disturbing true crime speculation. It's uh, pretty grisly shit. Followed by an explanation of the anti-Stratfordian theory, the theory that Shakespeare was not uh, Shakespeare. Before all that, real quick, the very first order of business today Why does Shakespeare matter at all? Why do we care about his place and his poetry? Who cares about Willie? And the answer is, most of us don't fucking care because we're not Renaissance fair fucking nerds. Most of us, in all honesty, I know I'd said something different up top, but honestly, most of us don't give a fuck about William Shakespeare. And we find the theater in general, including all the stupid plays he wrote, to be super fucking boring. Most of us actually like cool shit, like sex. Or putting up a new personal record on the bench press. Or streaming some uh, show uh, on an on a awesome uh, new 70-inch plasma. Some show full of fucking bad guys getting blasted by alpha males. And tons of hot titties being flashed on screen. Most of us like getting our dicks wet and getting drunk and high and not being a fucking dork. JK, uh, that was way too aggressive. Uh, I think most people who don't like the theater uh, do still at least acknowledge. Shakespeare is pretty cool. Come on, admit it. And even if they don't, uh, much of the media they do watch has been influenced by Shakespeare in some way. Uh, You can make the argument that essentially all modern storytelling has a little Shakespeare in it. Uh, According to the now online encyclopedia Britannica, a place providing a succinct summary that seems to share some of the same sentiments that many other publications believe, Shakespeare remains vital because his plays present people in situations that we recognize today. His characters have an emotional reality that transcends time. And his plays depict familiar experiences, ranging from family squabbles to falling in love to war. The fact that his plays are performed and adapted around the world underscores the universal appeal of his storytelling. Uh, Shakespeare's contemporary 
fellow poet and dramatist, Ben Johnson, wrote that Shakespeare was not of an age, but for all time. And Benny Boy fucking nailed it. It's insane that over 400 years after his death, nearly the entirety of Shakespeare's body of work is still being reproduced. Successfully, to packed houses, every year on stages around the world and continuously adapted to TV, film, and more. You cannot say that for literally any other author from Shakespeare's day or from before his day. Shakespeare truly stands alone in the longevity of his immense success, especially when you think about the entirety of his catalog. Uh, John Russell Brown, arguably the world's leading Shakespeare scholar for decades before his death in 2015 at the age of 91, wrote, it may be audacious even to attempt a definition of his greatness, but it is not so difficult to describe the gifts that enabled him to create imaginative visions of pathos and mirth that, whether read or witnessed in the theater, fill the mind and linger there. He is a writer of great intellectual rapidity, perceptiveness, and poetic power. Other writers have had these qualities, but with Shakespeare, the keenness of mind was applied not to abstruse or remote subjects, but to human beings and their complete range of emotions and conflicts. Other writers have applied their keenness of mind in this way, but Shakespeare is astonishingly clever with words and images, so that his mental energy, when applied to intelligible human situations, finds full and memorable expression, convincing and imaginatively stimulating. As if this were not enough, the art form into which his creative energies went was not remote and bookish, but involved the vivid stage of impersonation of human beings, commanding sympathy and inviting vicarious participation. Thus, Shakespeare's merits can survive translation into other languages and into cultures remote from that of Elizabethan England. That is why he still matters. Universal relevance, baby. He wrote plays that brought audiences to tears or had them laughing out loud back in the late 16th century and those same plays still bringing people to tears, still making people laugh over four centuries later. Who else, at least in the Western world, can claim that? Sophocles, right, the ancient Greek playwright who wrote in the 5th century BCE, a full two millennia before Shakespeare's time. We do still perform a few of his plays today, right? Mostly Oedipus Rex, but we don't perform all of them regularly anymore. And I would say the effect they have is more uh, historically interesting than it is like emotionally appealing today. Not that it doesn't have still some emotional weight. And he's not quoted nearly as often or studied as thoroughly as Shakespeare. Also for us here in America and in any other nation where the primary language is English, no other writer from before, during, or after Shakespeare's time in, you know, who wrote in English has been as heralded as much as he is. He really is the goat, right? It's fucking crazy how relevant he still is widely regarded as the greatest writer in the history of the English language. If he wrote what is it attributed, what is attributed to him, which again, we will get into later uh, as someone who in a sense has made a living as a writer, nearly his entire adult life. I am blown away by Shakespeare's talent uh, and stand-up comedy. It is so much easier to put on a well-received show. If you rely on pop culture references or whatever is trendy, right? Follow the trends like crowd work right now, whatever it is, uh, then it is to build an act based on universal truths an act that will be just as enjoyable to listen to 50 years from now as it is today. Very few comics have ever done that. Uh, Richard Pryor has done that in many moments. Uh, George Carlin has, Billy Connolly, uh, Bill Cosby. I know Bill the man, cringy as fuck now, uh, but some of his early albums about his family, they are about as universal as stand-up gets. Anyway, the list is small. Uh, now let's look at the state of theater in Shakespeare's time and place, get a feel for the world that brilliant mind sprang forth from. Shakespeare wrote plays during the Elizabethan and Jacobean ages. 
Simply put, these were the periods during the reigns of Queen Elizabeth I and King James I. Uh, the Elizabethan age began on November 17, 1558, when Queen Elizabeth I took throne after her half-sister Queen Mary I died from illness at the age of 42. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, like Queen Mary, one of the daughters of the infamous King Henry VIII, that dude who was married six times and had two of his wives executed, right? Off with their heads! And the dude who broke uh, England away from the Catholic Church. When the Pope would not grant him an annulment, which kicked off all sorts of Catholic versus Protestant bloodshed in the UK for centuries going forward. His daughter Elizabeth was Protestant. Mary was a Catholic. Elizabeth was imprisoned in the Tower of London by her sister due to suspicion of supporting Protestant rebels. She was worried her sister was coming for her Iron Throne. It was some real Game of Thrones shit. Uh, Queen Mary was known as uh, Bloody Mary by English Protestants. During her brief five-year reign, she had over 280 religious dissenters burned at the stake. Ban the witch! Uh, In this case, just being a non-Catholic Christian in her land during her reign was grounds for being either imprisoned or killed. Then when Elizabeth uh, became queen, the anti-Protestant madness ended and was replaced by anti-Catholic madness. While your basic Catholic wasn't burned at the stake and uh, they were instead imprisoned and or fined, their priest, if caught, was often beheaded or executed in some other manner. A large portion of Shakespeare's plays were written during the Elizabethan period and perhaps the fractured society he lived in helped him write tales such as Romeo and Juliet, right? the Montagues and Capulets at each other's throats in a fight for political supremacy of one family, similar to how the Protestants and Catholics were at each other's throats in Shakespeare's day. The Jacobean Age, uh, Jacobus meaning James in Latin, is the name of the artistic period during the reign of James I, uh, King James I, from 1603 to 1625, and that period considered very similar to the Elizabethan age. The persecution of Catholics continued, and connecting this to our witchcraft suck from a few episodes back, literal witch hunts were common during both these ages. Shakespeare was surrounded by people being tortured and killed for nothing more than gossip and superstition. Shakespeare's most famous tragedies were written during the uh, Jacobean age, the last 10 years of his career. Uh, Also, King James, who was Bloody Mary's son, was that King James, as in the man who commissioned the King James Version of the Bible, first published in 1611, the most widely published book in the history of the world. Pretty crazy that the most printed author of all time, William Shakespeare, his works have been printed over four fucking billion times, and the most printed book of all time, the King James Bible, printed between five and seven billion times, come from the same place and the same time, right? They're both coming out of uh, essentially London, but both of them are based uh, in, in the same uh, yeah period of time within a few years. Very strange coincidence. Uh, but back to burning the witches, providing an escape for many from the insanity of witch hunts and the plague. Plague outbreaks were common in London during Shakespeare's day, something else he had to deal with. And other madness like wars and just, uh, you know, living a typical shitty 16th or 17th century life was the theater. Melissa Thomas from Cedarcrest University, an expert on the theater culture of early modern England, uh, writes, long before the invention of modern technologies, such as radios and televisions, movies, video game systems, and the ever-popular internet, people in the Elizabethan age created an elaborate system of activities and events to keep themselves entertained. Anyone poor or rich could go to the theater to watch plays, Uh, but it was mostly the poor who went. Members of the upper class disapproved of how the poor had access to the theater. It was also used as a place for sex workers and their customers to maybe go on dates or to, you know, get some dates. And because plays were performed in the afternoon, people had to leave work, which the upper class also frowned on. 
I wonder how many members of the upper class uh, who disapproved of peasants not working had literally never worked themselves uh, in their lives thanks to the money they were born into. It's disgusting how the lazy, unruly, and downtrodden masses waste their slovenly lives at the theater. They should be working and making something of themselves. And another thing. Where's my fresh pot of tea? Where's the shortbread I asked for 20 minutes ago? How am I supposed to sit in my pleated leather chair and complain about the lazy poor in my mansion in front of the fire if my servants don't keep me full of tea and shortbread? Everyone's lazy. And my feet are cold. Where's Martha? I need my blanket adjusted. Uh, Many theaters were uh, not actually located in London. They were built on the south bank of the River Thames, just outside the city. That was because the city had strict regulations against theaters since 1575 due to plague outbreaks and unseemly behavior. And I will say theaters back uh, then, they were pretty fucking unseemly. Thanks to a real problem in London and the surrounding areas uh, with poop, with peanut butter. This is so fucking gross. London and Shakespeare's day had about 200,000 people living in this, in this, in, in the city. Uh, no modern plumbing. Just think about that. There's 200,000 people <laughs> living in uh, urban conditions and they don't have plumbing. No indoor plumbing. Best case, you had like a, a privy or a cesspit in your home, a little pit dug beneath your toilet, and you were supposed to have these pits emptied out by this brotherhood of sewage removal professionals known as gong farmers, toshers, rakers, night soil haulers, and more. Uh, Their job was to shovel out the shit from your privy or cesspit, dump it into a hand-drawn or horse-drawn cart, and then carry the shit out of the city and sell it as fertilizer. And they were doing this back when hand sanitizer and hot showers did not exist, when fucking no one had a Glade plug-in. Well, not everyone could afford to have these dudes keep their privies and cesspits clean, and so their shit, literal literal shit, excuse me, would back up and sometimes overflow into, say, a neighbor's basement or living room. Think about just like tip, tipping an outhouse outhouse over in your neighbor's living room. Or they'd illegally have their pits funnel out into a, a ditch or some creek or the River Thames. And not everyone even had a privy or a cesspool. So they would have, best case, uh, you know, a chamber pot. And they would shit and piss into that. Or just an old wooden bucket. And then they would just dump that literal bucket of shit into the street or the river. Or just wherever they could sneak off and dump it without getting caught and fined. Imagine how London smelled, just in general, on a hot summer's day. And early theaters, right? The context of all this uh, shittiness, no designated bathrooms. <laughs> and apparently this is true. I looked in so many stores, I'm like, this has got to be a fucking nonsense. But I guess not. People would just piss anywhere they felt comfortable pissing, oftentimes in like, especially the general seating area of the theater, where there wasn't assigned seating. It's so like, like more like a standing like the pit. <laughs> Many, uh, you know, maybe on the back wall of the theater, maybe one of the buckets or chamber pots, they would just hand, like toss around for that exact purpose, like during shows. Maybe they would step outside of the theater, piss in the river or against an exterior wall of the theater. Uh, the Globe Theater built in 1599 by Shakespeare's acting company, Lord Chamberlain's Men, had an area we might call the pit today. Big area directly in front of the stage had no seats. It was, uh, you know, for people who could, uh, couldn't afford seated tickets. It was cheaper, unreserved tickets. And people standing for the entirety of the production, they were called groundlings. They might just stand and piss there, hopefully into a bucket, while the play is being performed. And if nature dialed an extra number when she called, they might just shit in that bucket as well. <laughs> like a theater of people all tearing up as Juliet, you know, realizes Romeo is dead. And maybe one teary-eyed groundling who just is having some stomach problems is also taking a a, a dump. Uh, 
right? Just, oh, happy dagger. This is thy sheath. Oi! Who just cut thou turd of such stink? My heart bleeds for my Romeo and my eyes burn from the shit of some grounding for fuck's sake. And extra fun. All this showbiz was happening a few centuries before the advent of toilet paper. Uh, they would use an assortment of stuff to wipe their asses. Maybe some moss, maybe an old rag, uh, tree leaves, uh, cabbage leaves, tea leaves, pamphlets, any other scraps of paper that came from a book other than the Bible. And that's not me adding commentary. According to some sources, uh, that really was the only paper that was off limits, the Bible, for ripping up and wiping your ass with. And sometimes, and I really wish I was making this up, they would use their fucking shirt sleeves. <laughs> if they didn't have anything else handy or they just wouldn't wipe at all. What the fuck? Like, just don't wipe. How How is wiping shit on your shirt sleeve better than just leaving it on your ass? I mean, I guess you're not gonna get a rash, but fuck, the smells. And these dirty savages would just keep standing there in their filth watching a little bit of Hamlet or whatever. Ugh, feeling real grateful to be alive today right now. So grateful. Too bad Shakespeare can't get in a time machine. You know, come from the 16th century up to now and be like, oh, this is how people were supposed to watch my shows. Uh, While the bathroom situation wasn't very sanitary back then, the content of the productions themselves was sanitized to a degree. The theaters were censored by the Office of the Revels, presided over by the Master of the Revels. The Office of Revels was dedicated to reading play manuscripts before they were performed, removing any material deemed offensive or unseemly. Make sure there wasn't any witchcraft bullshit snuck into the script. Right? Make sure no jokes are being made at the expense of the king or that the material wasn't uh, too anti-Catholic or anti-Protestant or anti-whatever-was-fucking- you're not supposed to be against at that time. Who worked at the office of the revels? What kind of killjoy was eager to do some censoring? And how different would some of Shakespeare's plays be now if he hadn't been censored? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore out thou, Romeo? How I long for your prick, your meat spindle. Your inflated fiddle to pierce the tender recesses of my bikini burger for the very first time. Hail, Lucifina. I mean, maybe bikini burger, burger uh, wasn't vaginal slang from the correct era. It just makes me laugh, though. I, don't, I can't remember hearing bikini burger <laughs> as a euphemism for vagina before this week. Uh, that kind of shit probably would have played well for the crowds of Shakespeare's day. Much of the audience was dudes. Upper and lower class women, also visitors to the theater, but not as common. Uh, wealthy women, the least common attendees. When they did show up, they typically wore masks to hide their identities because it was it was frowned upon for for women of a of a certain status to watch performances. Although Queen Elizabeth herself loved the theater, and when I say Queen Elizabeth, I uh, I do want to make it clear that I don't mean the recent queen who died in 2022 because I I can see how that would be confusing. She would be Queen Elizabeth II, but I want to like make that clear because. Uh, Due to her very advanced age towards the end of her life, I I could see how some of you might think that she was born in the 16th century. (laughs) Uh, So most of the audience was men and all of the actors were men. The performance is real sausage fests. As many of you most likely learned in your high school English classes, women not allowed to perform for centuries. According to a lecture by Lawrence Senelik, professor of drama and oratory at Tufts University, from the dawn of time, women's presence in the theater has been the exception rather than the rule. The theater is grounded in religion and having women on stage was not considered decorous. Their realm is the home. And staff writer Ken Gewertz once wrote for the Harvard Gazette, the irony is that the religion from which ancient Greek theaters sprang up was the worship of Dionysus, the god of ecstasy, whose rites were carried out principally by women. 
But when these rites evolved into theater, women were banished from the stage and their parts taken by men. The Greeks believed that allowing women to perform publicly would be too dangerous and that having men portray them neutralized the danger. So dangerous to let women perform publicly. They might be seen as overtly sexual. They might say things in the play that people uh, think they really believe, controversial things. Uh, Women were not allowed to perform until later in the 17th century, just after Shakespeare's time, when female opera singers uh, started performing. And even then, many still didn't approve. Pope Clement XI said, A beautiful woman who sings on stage and keeps her chastity is like a man who leaps into the Tiber and keeps his feet dry. Ah, man, what a fucking weirdo. So dangerous. Performing a passionate role, perhaps playing a character with a romantic relationship or interest in another character, inevitably leads to that devil pussy getting wet, that chaste bikini burger getting all moist, the horror. Now a few words on how the theater was evolving in England before and during Shakespeare's day. In England in the early 16th century, just before Shakespeare's time, there were two group uh, types of theater in England. Small groups of professionals who performed in various halls, inns, and markets, taking gigs wherever they could get them, or groups of amateur actors who sometimes performed for the royals or assorted gentry just for funsies. By the second half of the 16th century, some of London's professional acting troops had become quite popular and were able to remain in London for performances instead of taking their dog and pony shows out on the road. In 1576, when Shakespeare would have been 12, professional thespian, theatrical producer, and now theater builder James Burbage establishes the theater. That's actually what it was called. The theater. Uh, The first successful permanent space dedicated to performing plays in London. And the first true theater of any kind in England since Roman times. It sat just outside of London, due again to the mayor of London banning plays due to concerns about plague outbreaks. Another theater, the Red Lion, had been built just before the theater, but didn't even last a year before shutting down. So Burbage's theater would last until just after his death, which uh, you know ended his lease in 1598. So they had a nice 26-year run. Uh, James' son, Richard Burbage, Dickie B, baby. No dick quest, but still a fine dick. Will go on to be Shakespeare's greatest actor. Uh, more on that dick later. Uh, more theaters will be constructed in the years following the opening of the theater. Being able to have a dedicated year-round theater, uh, hosting production after production, just like what happens on Broadway in New York or the West End in today's London or in theater districts in virtually every major city in the world. That is now a thing in Shakespeare's London, which greatly helps him. Uh, Most stages during the Elizabethan age in London were platforms, sometimes as large as 40 square feet in the middle of a yard, surrounded by mostly standing or only standing spectators. Platforms were usually raised four to six feet, had a roof, which was called the shadow or the heavens. The roof was meant to conceal an area where production objects, uh, set decorations were raised or lowered. At the back of the stage was a multi-leveled facade with two large doors at stage level and a space for discoveries of hidden characters. Few props would be used during performances and larger props usually stayed on stage throughout the play. Oftentimes, actors didn't spend much time rehearsing, usually only received their personal lines. Uh, Play productions clearly a lot more raw back then. Or maybe people were a lot better at memorizing lines back then than they are now. Back when uh, they lived in a world where fewer people had access to books, no one had access to the internet, so you couldn't just easily look something up when you forgot it. Because of a lack of rehearsals compared to today, some of the most important scenes in plays usually involved just a few characters, and often just one character dominated the scene. The less back-and-forth dialogue, the easier to get the production up and running. Female roles were performed by boys or young men, 
which is why in many of Shakespeare's plays, women are not the stars and often do not remain on stage for very long. And hopefully the boys weren't too young. I'm having some weird visuals right now in my head, like a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo is played by some large, beefy, I don't know, fucking 30, 40-year-old bearded dude. And then Juliet is played by a waifish baby face, like 11-year-old boy. Just a bit cringy. Uh, Despite being more simplistic than today's productions, Elizabethan plays did have special effects such as smoke, cannons, fireworks, and flying entrances where actors will be rigged up to the roof area. It's pretty cool they were able to do that back then. Uh, Stages also had trapdoors that allowed ghosts to rise from the graves. And of course, productions evolved to incorporate cooler stage tricks and become more polished as more theaters sprung up, providing more of a a true scene for actors and set designers and theater carpenters, producers, etc., to work on their craft, right? Where they pushed each other to get better and better. In some theaters, a wall covered by a curtain separated backstage from the dressing room. This was called the heiress. The theater's overall shapes were round, square, or octagonal, and typically had thatched roofs that covered part or all of the space above the audience. Spectators could usually either stand in the yard, sit on benches, sit in a private box, or even sit on a stool on stage if they had enough money. And that is fucking weird. I wonder if the actors hated that. They must have. It makes me think of performing a stand-up set with some, uh, you know, king shit VIP literally on stage with me. (laughs) Someone who paid so much, I can't just have them kicked out if they get too rowdy or disruptive. No, thank you. I can see that setup leading to some actors really losing their shit. I have to spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on Would You shut the fuck up, Jonathan! Do you really have to piss in a fucking bucket on the stage right now, you piece of shit? It's the middle of my pivotal soliloquy. Uh, Theater performances were usually about three hours long. Plays were performed each day with different plays, performed every day. Theaters put up flags on performance day and occasionally put a picture up advertising the next day's play. Uh, Black flags were used for tragedies, white for comedies, and red for histories. Why the colors? Well, because people were largely illiterate back then. (laughs) Uh, A lot of these audiences were also obnoxious assholes. Audiences typically were not quiet during performances, which sounds horrific to me. They uh, would talk throughout the entirety of the play, often arrive late, and leave whenever they wanted to. Uh, They would interrupt actors, yell at actors, sometimes get up on stage and insert themselves into the play, and the whole throwing rotten tomatoes thing that is not made up. Some audience members would actually bring rotten vegetables to throw at performers. (laughs) Ah, As someone who's been a traveling performer for the majority of my life, what a fucking nightmare. Uh, The theater crowd that Shakespeare produced his works for, not at all like the theater crowd today. Etiquette has thankfully improved dramatically in the past 400 years. And audiences are showing a lot more respect for the works of Shakespeare now than they ever did in his lifetime. Pretty sad that the audiences that watch, uh, you know, that watch uh, Shakespeare's works today are just so much better than the audiences he actually saw in his lifetime. Let's now discuss a brief overview of his writing style. Uh, Shakespeare was a creative genius who, like all creative people, genius or not, was inspired and influenced to some degree by the authors who came before him. Uh, For example, historical characters written about in Chronicles by Raphael Hollinshed, published in 1577 when Shakespeare was 13, very likely directly inspired the plays Macbeth and King Lear. Uh, Chronicles was a collaborative work that covers British history. Uh, Raphael Hollinshed was an English chronicler most known for writing chronicles, makes sense, tracks. 
Uh, his work became a source that helped inspire many dramatists of the Elizabethan era. Shakespeare was also inspired by, an, by ancient Greek writers like uh, Ovid and uh, Seneca. Uh, Cardenio, one of Shakespeare's lost works, most likely based on parts of Don Quixote. Cardenio or the history of Cardenio uh, and Love's Labor One are both considered by many to be Shakespeare's lost plays. There may have been others that we just uh, have not found references to. With Cardenio, I think I was saying Cardenio, uh, we know based on historical documents that the King's Men performed it. We just don't know its contents. It likely had something to do with the character Cardenio from Don Quixote. Uh, same for Love's Labor One, except uh, some think this was an alternate title for one of Shakespeare's known plays. So maybe that was not an extra play. Uh, now let's go full fucking high school literature class and blow spit watts at the teacher when he or she is writing on the chalkboard with their back towards us. Or let's talk about iambic pentameter. Iambic pentameter is the name given to the rhythm that Shakespeare used in his plays and sonnets, a rhythm he did not invent, by the way. It was a poetic writing style already popular in England during his day. He just made it famous. The rhythm of iambic pentameter is like a heartbeat with one soft beat and one strong beat repeated five times. An am is a foot or beat that consists of an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed symbol, right? Example words, uh, delight, the sun, I guess that's not a word, that's two, forlorn, one day, release, uh, penta means five meters, so iambic pentameter means five feet or five sets of stressed syllables and unstressed syllables. A popular website dedicated to everything Shakespeare, no sweat Shakespeare, writes, Putting these two terms together, iambic pentameter is a line of writing that consists of 10 syllables in a specific pattern of an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable or a short syllable followed by a long symbol, uh, syllable. One example from Shakespeare's writing is, shall I compare the two a summer's day? I guess that's uh, some version of that. That's how they say it, but they'd make it sound a lot cooler than I just did. Iambic pentameter was popular during both the Elizabethan and Jacobean ages. According to No Sweat Shakespeare, iambic pentameter is a basic rhythm that's pleasing to the ear and closely resembles the rhythm of everyday speech or a heartbeat. In addition to having a pleasing rhythm, Shakespeare also was a fabulously entertaining writer, tragedy, comedy, or historical play. He knew how to keep his audiences crying, laughing, or at least, you know, interested in what they were hearing and watching. Uh, he had a little, little bit of Lucifina in him. Hail Lucifina. Uh, Shakespeare's audiences were often laughing, interjecting, and shouting at the actors because his plays were full of sexual innuendos that he managed to sneak past the master of the revels. Here's some examples from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2. Lady, shall I lie in your lap? No, my lord. Do you think I meant country manners? Oh, wait, uh, sorry. Did you think I meant country matters? I think nothing, my lord. That's a fair thought to lie between maids' legs. Well, during the Elizabethan era, nothing was slang for uh, pussy. And country was pronounced with a lot of emphasis on the first syllable. So, cunt re. So, you know, talking about puss there, meat sacks. Hamlet talking about getting in and out and in and out and in and out of Ophelia's uh, bikini burger. Here's more hot and steamy Elizabethan era sexiness from the poem Venus and Adonis. Graze on my lips, and if those hills be dry, stray lower. Where the pleasant fountains lie. Ah, oh, fuck yeah, bro. Eat my puss. And from Titus Andronicus, Act 4, Scene 2. Thou has undone our mother. Villain, I have done thy mother. Mm-hmm. Throwing in a little, uh, I fucked your mom. Uh, reference back in the late 16th century. Uh, from the 12th night, Act 2, Scene 5. 
by my life, this is my lady's hand. These be her very C's, her U's, and her T's, and thus make she her great P's. During the Elizabethan era, this line would have been read as uh, her very C's, her U's, N, instead of an N, N, her T's. So, you know, cunt. As in, uh, again, bikini burger. A little more about Sweet Willie's naughty style now, and then we'll hop into his timeline. Uh, Shakespeare's early plays were written in the conventional style of his time, which means they were written with elaborate metaphors and rhetorical phrases that didn't always align naturally uh, with the story's plot or characters. Over his career, Shakespeare adapted this traditional style. He incorporated the metrical pattern consisting of lines of unrhymed iambic pentameter, also called blank verse, that we just went over. And there are passengers in his, pl- uh, passages in his plays that deviate from iambic, iambic pentameter and use simple prose. Shakespeare wrote between 37 and 39 plays from approximately 1590 to 1613. The most common themes of his plays were histories, tragedies, comedies, and tragicomedies. Most of his plays were histories. Plays like Henry VI, parts one, two, and three. Dude had a fucking trilogy. Just like film franchises so often do today, Henry VI was his very own Back to the Future franchise or something like that. He also wrote Richard II, Henry V. All these plays focused primarily on the actions of corrupt rulers. Uh, Julius Caesar was meant to showcase the drama and chaos of Roman politics, which may have been relevant to the times because of Queen Elizabeth I. She had no heirs, leaving the throne open and conflict inevitable, a topic undoubtedly on the minds of his audience members. Uh, Shakespeare also wrote comedies like A Midsummer Night's Dream, Merchant of Venice, Much Ado About Nothing, As You Like It, and Twelfth Night. Shakespeare transitioned to uh, tragedies after 1600, writing classics like Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth. Hamlet, aka the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, uh, one of Shakespeare's most well-known plays, exploring darker elements of human nature. Hamlet is still considered among the most powerful and influential tragedies in the English language, with a story capable of seemingly endless retelling and adaptation by others. It's been adapted over uh, 50 film into over 50 films and counting. I personally love the 1996 version with Mel Gibson, Glenn Close, Helena Bonham Carter. She is fantastic. Uh, During his final period, Shakespeare wrote tragic comedies like Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. Uh, The Tempest has been made in numerous films and inspired many others, including the awesome sci-fi thriller uh, Ex Machina. And let's look into all of that right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, Play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant, or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around, Meat Sex. Now it is actually time for the timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Uh, Despite how prolific of a writer Shakespeare was, like I mentioned earlier, 
We don't know a lot about his personal life. The only official documentation of Shakespeare is church and court records. Uh, William, uh, but that being said, yeah, here we, here we go. Uh, William Zip Zap Shakespeare was born on April 23rd, 1564. His middle name is usually not mentioned because it sounds just pretty silly today. But Zip Zap was a super common middle name in England in the mid-16th century. People who had it typically went by Zippy or Zappy. It is thought that Shakespeare's closest friends and family did know him as Zippy, Zippy Willie. And uh, that is nonsense, of course, but it makes me laugh to think about it. Makes me laugh to think about the greatest playwright in the history of the English language, being a dude commonly known as Zippy Willie. Uh, what was actually common when and where William was born was uh, not to have a middle name. There are actually no birth records for Shakespeare, but the parish register of his local church states that he was baptized at Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, April 26, 1564. Uh, the origins of that church, uh, built in 1210 CE on the site of an even older church, more than 200,000 people a year now visit that church because of Shakespeare. It's believed that based on Zippy Willie's baptismal date, he would, he would have been born three days earlier, which would have fit baptismal traditions of England at that time. So born on April 23rd, 1564. Stratford-upon-Avon, located over 90 miles northwest of London, according to biography.com. It was a bustling market town along the River Avon and bisected by a, and bisected by a country road. Historians think it would have taken Shakespeare traveling by stagecoach about three days to make the journey between uh, Stratford and London. What a, what a different time. Now, if you have a car, uh, drive above the speed limit, uh, you know, and, and drive above the speed limit a bit like, like the average person, you can knock that journey out in less than two hours if you don't hit too much traffic. The first residents of the Stratford area were an Anglican tribe called the Weecha or Weeche, a Germanic tribe that settled in the area after the Romans left. Settlement was absorbed into the Anglo-Saxon kingdom around the 6th century. That's when it's got its name. Uh, first written Anglo-Saxon uh, reference to Stratford occurred between 693 and 717. The town was named uh, 8 Stratford, the Isles of the Ford. According to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, presumably it was the establishment of the Holy Trinity Church that drew written attention. So the original church may have been built, uh, you know, a long time before 1210. The small settlement at the time consisted of a church, a monastery, a water mill, and a community of about 20 families. And then Danish raiders, fucking Vikings, destroyed all that in 1015 while doing some literal raping and pillaging in the area. A terrible time to be alive. At some point during the 11th century, the Holy Trinity Church was rebuilt with stone and then rebuilt again in 1210. During the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, residents of Stratford lived uh, under the feudal system. The settlement became a planned town. Uh, with gridded streets and houses on narrow plots of land. Around 1269, the Guild of the Holy Cross took municipal responsibility for the city and would remain in control until 1547. The Guild was the central institution of Stratford's civic and cultural life, which catered for the town's spiritual needs and fulfilled a range of political and social functions, such as building and maintaining a hospital. A number of historical buildings associated with the Guild still survive today. In the early 14th century, John de Stratford, Became the first Stratford resident to attend university. He graduated in 1311. He would eventually become the Archbishop of Canterbury and donate money towards paving the streets and church renovations back in Stratford-upon-Avon. When the Guild of the Holy Cross was abolished in 1547, following declining membership thanks to all of the religious and political turmoil and uncertainty in England at that time, right, fucking Henry VIII's mess, the town had no local government for the next six years. Shit got Wild West. Uh, the guild system was then replaced by what was called the corporation. 
<laughs> sounds uh, sounds terrible. The townspeople took ownership of guild property, and the town once again became self-governing, self-governing under authority of the crown, of course. A group of 28 local bigwigs ran the show, kind of like a city council today, excuse me, due to a lack of records, not totally clear how they were elected or exactly how they ran things. Many Stratford residents at that time, now we are in Shakespeare's time, relied on the wool trade and sheep farming. Stratford was a regional center for the processing, marketing, and distribution of various sheep products. It's a fucking classic sheep town. Uh, Stratford was considered a, a very economically successful town. A lot of, a lot of good wool. So many good sheeps. By the time old Zippy Willie was born, Stratford would later go on to experience further economic growth in the 18th century, mostly due to Shakespeare's reputation. Uh, by the end of the 1700s, Stratford uh, already becoming a tourist town. In 1769, actor and playwright David Garrick organized the Shakespeare Jubilee, the very first festival celebrating Zippy Willie in his hometown. In the 19th century, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust was established, which provided cultural capital to attract more tourists. And now, Stratford is the second most visited location in all of the UK. London is number one, right? And then Stratford is number two. Approximately 2.7 million people a year visit Stratford. That's fucking wild. One guy still making all kinds of people all kinds of money. Just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions, probably billions of pounds, four centuries after his death. A little over 30,000 people uh, now live in this town and only three or maybe four of them are able to make a living without hanging off a of Zippy Willie's nuts. And that is a quote from the Stratford Shakespearean Economic Society, or would be if that society existed. Uh, but for real, tourism is far and away the leading provider of jobs in Stratford-upon-Avon, all due to one dude. In a very real way, Shakespeare built that city. Not Starship, like they claim in their 1985 chart topper. And that's a corny 80s rock reference, if you're confused right now. Uh, let's transition back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare was the third child of John Shakespeare and Mary Arden. John and Mary had eight kids. Sadly, their first two daughters died as infants, which made Shakespeare their third progeny, their oldest living child. Shakespeare's sister Joan died a few weeks after being born, and his sister Margaret died at the age of one. Man, watching your first two kids die before the age of two. It's fucking brutal. Uh, I do not wish that on anyone, but it was common back then. It was the norm at this uh, at this time, really. Like, you were the anomaly if, uh, you know, uh, one or more of your kids didn't die during childhood. Shakespeare had five younger siblings. His brother Gilbert, or Gilbert was born in 1566, died in 1612. Joan, 1569, died in 1646. Anne, born in 1571 and died in 1579. Richard, gotta love the nonstop suck first dick parade, born in 1574, died in 1613. And Edmund, born in 1580 and would die in 1607. Records suggest that Gilbert was a haberdasher and might have spent most of his time in London. There's a record of a haberdasher named Gilbert Shakespeare in St. Bride's, a church on London's famous Fleet Street. Fleet Street's been around since Roman times, uh, now famous for having some of England's oldest banks, finest hotels, and became known for printing and publishing towards the end of Shakespeare's life at the start of the 16th century. Uh, by the 20th century, most British national newspapers operated from Fleet Street. In Shakespeare's day, a haberdasher was a person who sold small articles for sewing, dressmaking, and knitting, such as buttons, ribbons, and zippers. Later, it became a term for someone selling men's clothing, specifically suits. Uh, Joan was the only sibling who would outlive Shakespeare. She married a hatter named William Hart, William the Hatter Hart, in the 1590s. All these old-timey jobs. I love it. 
haberdashers and hatters. Uh, luckily, none of the Shakespeare clan uh, had to work as a night soil hauler. And night soil might be the best euphemism I've ever heard for poop. You feeling okay, Joe? <laughs> I am now. I had to pump out a little night soil earlier. Feeling way better now. Uh, William's brother, Edmund, was a London actor. He died at the young age of 27. And it's believed Shakespeare paid for his funeral. Uh, too bad we uh, we don't know how good he was at acting. There are no records of how captivated or not audiences were with his performances. That would suck to be fucking Shakespeare's brother and just be a shit actor. Always, you know, playing fucking Bush number six in a, in a production. Uh, William's father, John, was a glove maker and a political figure in town. He served different civic positions, which gave him an elevated status. And that status allowed him to send his kids to the local grammar school for free. And I love that glove making, just gloves, no other articles of clothing, was a, uh, a true craft with practitioners all around England going back to at least as far as the mid-14th century. They made gloves from the skins of sheep, uh, does, horses, uh, goats, as well as from satin, silk, velvet, and worsted. Gloves were popular as gifts and featured in Wills as presents for mourners. Uh, so-called chicken skin gloves were also a thing. A set of chicken skin gloves. It's got to be a lot easier to find a chicken skin duffel bag right now than it is to find a pair of chicken skin gloves. You get it. Uh, chicken skin gloves were actually made from the skin of unborn calves. Yeek. And check out this level of decadence. Check out this level of don't give a fuck. Right? This is back then. These nasty ass gloves were popular with royal women for a time because they were so ridiculously thin, smooth, and delicate. A total status thing. Like, like an Elizabethan version of Armani or Prada or Rolex. The sign of getting a legit pair from a true master of their craft was if it passed the walnut shell test. And that meant a pair of these chicken skin gloves could be folded down into a shape so tiny it would fit into a little walnut shell. And these gloves were so delicate, they were meant to only be worn either a few times or just once. Because trying to wash them would destroy them. A little random glove trivia for you today, right? So they would just fucking <laughs> take some not quite born fetus and like, let's fucking kill it so we can make a couple gloves that can be worn one time. Uh, I'm sure you're hoping to beef up on your Elizabethan glove knowledge with this episode. Uh, now a bit about Zippy Willie's mama. Mary Arden was a daughter of a farmer from the village of Wilmcote. Uh, she was most likely born between 1536 and 1538, the youngest of eight kids of Robert Arden, old Bobby A., a member of the Guild of the Holy Cross. When Mary's father died, she inherited a significant amount of land and a little over six pounds which is roughly equivalent to around 4 billion pounds today. No, uh, 30,000 pounds in modern money. About 40,000 bucks, maybe. Very hard to rely on inflation calculators for reliable currency translation from, you know, that long ago. Mary was uh, between 19 and 21 when she married John. And there's some evidence that Mary knew how to read, which uh, wasn't rare exactly for a woman at that time, but many women were illiterate since schools for girls would not arrive in England until the 17th century. And she was mentioned as the executor of her father's will. Now back to Papa John. Better sonnets. Better night soil. Papa Shakespeare. Uh, John Shakespeare was most likely born in the 1520s. He was the son of a farmer, Richard Shakespeare. Fucking cool. Another dick for the sucks too. Uh, from the village Snitterfield. Old Dick S. from Snitterfield. About two miles from Stratford. John moved to Stratford by 1552 at the latest on April 29th of that year. He had to pay a fine of one shilling for creating a midden heap, a muck heap in the street. Apparently he threw his shit, his literal shit, out into the street in a way that ran contrary to some kind of local ordinance. Like maybe there was a designated night soil disposal area on one side of the street and he just flung his turds 
on the other side. Uh, John purchased property in 1556 on Greenhill Street and Henley Street, where Shakespeare would be born eight years later. John married Mary Arden the following year in 1557, owning a house, made him a man worth marrying. In 1556, John was appointed to the civic position of ale taster. That was a, a common job back then. Uh, still, still loving all these old-timey jobs. An official ale tester tasted the ale and bread made in a town to make sure that the locals weren't eating or drinking anything moldy, rotten, or just, you know, especially not good for whatever reason. They made sure certain standards were being held so the locals weren't being ripped off and to prevent the town from getting a bad reputation amongst outsiders. I think of them as like, you know, beer inspectors, beer and bread inspectors. This position led to more civic positions for John, such as Chamberlain, Constable in 1558, Alderman in 1564, and High Bailiff, uh, basically mayor in 1568. Uh, John was also one of 22 glove makers in town. 22 glove makers in a town of about 2,500 people. That's one glove maker for over 113-ish people. Gloves were fucking hot in Stratford. You either had some sick-ass gloves, you either rocked that sweet chicken skin, or you were a bare-handed fucking loser. Go lay down in a ditch and die, you naked-fingered fuck. Can't afford a new pair of calf feet as hand warmers every time you leave the house? How do you keep waking up every morning when you're so poor and pathetic? In addition to being a local glove maker, uh, John was also a widower and made his own leather with deer, horse, goat, sheep, and hound skin. Hound skin! My God. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you like some hound skin shoes? No, I don't want some fucking hound skin shoes. It's fucking horrific. John was also a wool brogger in his spare time, which was an unlicensed illegal wool dealer. Wool dealing was restricted to state-approved wool merchants after a 1553 Act of Parliament. The crown wanted a piece of every wool shilling made in the kingdom. But Johnny, Johnny S. wasn't going to wait on no government to give his sweet-ass permission to make his fucking wool. Don't tread on me, motherfuckers! No one tells Johnny Caffey his fingers if he can or cannot make his ass some wool. John made a killing with black market wool. He actually did. From 1571 to 1572, he sold approximately uh, 5,600 pounds of illegal black market wool. What a funny item to be in the black market, by the way. I picture some guy in an alley with a cart of so much wool behind him. Just, hey, 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 over here. You want in on some of these mittens? You're not going to find a better sweater for a better price than this sweet, sexy shit I got right here. Come on, bro. Let me pull the wool over your eyes. You know you want this quilt. Uh, John had to go to court in 1572 for illegal wool purchases. Following this, he was done with local government and he stopped going to council meetings. If they weren't going to let him make his fucking wool cash, you know, fuck them all. Uh, John started mortgaging some of his land now, starting with a 48-acre purchase, which indicated the beginning of his money problems. He still had the sheep, just couldn't make cash off them anymore like he used to. They cut off his, uh, you know, his fucking wool dollar flow or whatever. And now, now the gloves aren't paying the bills. The local market is flooded with gloves. You can't throw a fucking rock without hitting some schmuck working on some chicken skin gloves. In 1592, John fails to appear in church because of his debts, which I knew exactly why that kept him out. Maybe embarrassment or maybe literally uh, not allowed to go to church until he paid back some debts. I don't know. However, it seems like he was able to turn things around because in 1596, John was awarded a coat of arms. More on that coat of arms later. Uh, we have very few records about Shakespeare's childhood and education. 
According to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, Mary Arden would likely have told young Shakespeare fables and fairy tales, like a typical English mother, an English mum, would do for her child. Uh, that's what folks did there when he was little. These childhood stories would be referenced in some of Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare also would have read, like other children of his day and age, or at least other male children, the Bible at home. At the age of seven, he attended Petty School, where he learned the alphabet, numbers, and Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And this was typically written on parchment and made into a so-called horn book. A horn book was a single-sided alphabet tablet, which served from medieval times as a primer for study, and sometimes included vowel combinations, numerals, or short verse. From 1571 to 1579, ages 7 to 15 for Zippy Willie, Shakespeare likely attended the local grammar school called the King's New School, which had been established by King Edward VI a few decades before to offer free education to boys in Stratford. Uh, there are no written records of his attendance, but it would have been you know, unusual for him not to have attended that school, especially considering how literate he went on to become. Uh, according to Lois Potter, former English professor at the University of Delaware and Shakespeare aficionado, while the school's records during Shakespeare's childhood no longer exist, References in his play suggest he knew all the basics that boys would have learned at grammar school. For example, in Much Ado About Nothing, the character Benedict says the line, What? Interjections? Well then, some be of laughing as ha ha, he he. Uh, this comes from a section of the William Lilly's grammar book that teachers in England were supposed to use. School taught reading, writing, and the classics. Shakespeare would have learned uh, and spoke, uh, you know, spoken, excuse me, and written Latin at this school. And he would have studied classic Latin authors or authors in Latin. Students also expected to speak Latin to each other during recess and at home. Uh, Shakespeare most likely left school at the age of 14 to begin a seven-year apprenticeship until his coming of age. There are no records of Shakespeare attending university. As mentioned previously, Shakespeare lived with his family in a house on Henley Street until he was 18. If he did begin an apprenticeship around that time, we don't uh, know what it was. Johnny Shakespeare owned the house Zippy Willie was born and raised in for approximately 50 years. The house served as a family residence and his glover shop, John worked on the east side of the building. They had a barn and workshops outside where he did his dirty, illicit wool trading. About 20 years after the house was constructed, a two-room cottage was added where Shakespeare's sister Joan and her husband William would live. Apparently, there were only about 10 fucking names back then to pick, for, uh, pick from for dudes. Right? We got William, we got Richard, and we got a couple more. Uh, John left the house to his oldest daughter, Susanna, when he died. Willie's sister Joan continued renting the house. Susanna left the house to her daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had no kids, so the house went to the descendants of Joan Hart, and the Harts owned the Henley Street house until the late 18th century. The house eventually went up for sale and was purchased by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which is great, so it can be preserved. Uh, Shakespeare's birthplace went up for sale in 1847. Uh, the Henley Street property was divided into three entities, the Swan and Maidenhead Inn, a butcher shop, and a tenement. Uh, the entire building was owned by Ann Court for a time, Ann's husband, Thomas Court, had restrictions in his will on how the property could be sold. The will stated that after Anne's death, the house had to enter a public auction. And when it did go up for auction, there was so much interest, as you can imagine, from people like Washington Irving, uh, Charles Dickens. By the 1830s, the Royal Shakespearean Club was involved in the restoration of Shakespeare's bust and grave at the Holy Trinity Church. The club was already discussing the idea of buying the house before the sale was even public knowledge. They then established the Shakespeare Birthplace Committee and intended to buy the property with a bunch of pooled money. The committee was divided between Stratford and London. One of the London members was Charles Dickens, arguably the most famous English author next to Shakespeare. The committee uh, needed to raise enough money to buy the house as well as have enough additional money to properly restore and maintain the property. 
The Henley Street House went up for sale in 1847 with an auction scheduled for September 16th. There were rumors that P.T. Barnum was going to purchase and ship the house to New York for a fucking theme park. So glad that never happened. Uh, Does Shakespeare really scream theme park? Do we really need to be able to eat massive ice cream sundaes, huge sodas, you know, overpriced hot dogs while waiting in line for some much ado about free falling? Some roller coaster ride? The Tempest Underwater Adventure. Romeo and Juliet's House of Horrors. Uh, the committee posted pamphlets and flyers to ask for donations and were able to raise 3,000 pounds by September 16th to purchase the property. Highest offer was 2,100 pounds until the Stratford and London committees gave their bid letter offering the 3,000 pounds and won the auction. After they purchased the property and started restoration, the committee changed their name to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which has been a big source for this episode. Uh, the trust still works today to preserve the house as much as possible. So visitors can experience what it was like during Shakespeare's time. So thank you, Dickens. Uh, And based on tourism numbers, I'm going to say that they have some seriously deep pockets now and do not have to worry about needing to sell the property anytime soon. And if they did, I have no doubt that the British government would claim and maintain the property. November 28th, 1582, 18-year-old Shakespeare now marries 26-year-old Anne Hathaway after they had already started fucking for sure. So much prick and bikini burger action. Uh, Anne Hathaway will outlive her younger husband by over seven years. She lived from 1556 to 1623, dying at the age of either 66 or 67. A little confusion there since we know the year, but not the day or month of her birth. Uh, We actually know very little in general about her. Most of what we know comes from old legal records. We know that Anne was from Shottery, a little village near Stratford, about a mile away, uh, that long ago was absorbed by Stratford. The home she grew up in, now called Anne Hathaway's Cottage, 12-room farmhouse, has also been preserved, thankfully. Also by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. They uh, bought it in 1892. Anne was sometimes called Agnes. Uh, She grew up less than 1.5 miles from Zippy Willie. Her dad was a farmer and he left her a sum of money in his will so she could get married. Uh, According to that trust, William and Anne might have done a hand fasting ceremony before their official wedding. Hand fasting was usually done on August 1st, Lama's Day, a harvest festival. And hand fasting was an unofficial wedding. Kind of similar to giving somebody a promise ring today, maybe a little more serious. It would have been a pledge to get married. Anne was three months pregnant when she married Shakespeare, a couple in a rush to get officially married before she started to show. Shakespeare submitted a marriage application to the bishop's court in Worcester. Two farmers from Shottery went with him to serve as guarantors for the 40-pound fee they would be required to pay if their marriage was found to be invalid. Uh, William was still considered a minor at that time and was legally required to have permission from Anne's father to marry her because the age of legal adulthood was 21 back then, which surprises me for some reason. It's younger now than it was then. Her early marriage also meant he could not legally complete his apprenticeship if he even was in one. So many rules back then. Uh, Shakespeare's marriage license allowed him to get married outside of Stratford-upon-Avon. There uh, are two documents within the Worcester Diocesan uh, archives that confirm William and Anne were married in November of 1582, but the documents uh, don't say where exactly they got married. Bond dated November 28th. There was only one reading of the bonds, which was an announcement of the upcoming marriage that would allow people to raise objections. That was usually done, you know, three times in the three weeks leading up to the wedding. And has anyone ever been to a wedding where someone actually did object? Uh, or is that only in the movies? I don't, I don't think I know anyone who has witnessed an actual marriage objection. That would add a lot of entertainment value to the wedding if that did happen. Uh, Some scholars believe that the two only married because Anne was pregnant, but that's just uh, speculation. They might have been perfectly happy. 
William and Anne would be married until William's death for 34 years. On May 26, 1583, Shakespeare's daughter Susanna is born and then baptized. Scholars believe that Susanna went on to uh, receive a private education and, you know, therefore would have been able to read and write. While there still wasn't, you know, proper schools for girls yet, you could hire a tutor to give your daughter an excellent education if you had the money and they for sure had the money. Uh, Susanna Shakespeare will marry physician John Hall at the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, June 5th, 1607. February 2nd, 1585, Shakespeare's twins, Hamnet and Judith, are born and baptized. Hamnet and Judith, named after family friends, Hamnet and Judith Sadler. Uh, Tragically, Hamnet dies of unknown causes at the age of 11. Fucking brutal. That actually seems worse, maybe, than losing a child under the age of two, right? Still so young, but also old enough to have really developed a strong identity. So you can start to see what kind of adult they were becoming. So many more years of bonding. Uh, Hamnet was buried in the Holy Trinity Churchyard, August 11th, 1596. And many Shakespeare scholars believe that the speech of the character Constance in the play King John reflects Shakespeare's pain at losing his child. Uh, From King John Acts 3, scene 4, Grief fills the room up of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief. Fare you well. Had you such a loss as I, I could give better comfort than you do. I will not keep this form upon my head when there is such disorder in my wit. O Lord, my boy, my Arthur, my fair son, my life, my joy, my food, my all the world. Man, that pain is the fucking pain that scares me the most. Scares me so much more than, uh, you know, like my own inevitable death. The pain of losing a child. My heart truly goes out to parents who have experienced that fucking horrific tragedy. Also, Hamlet, obviously pretty close to Hamnet. And many think Shakespeare named the tragic protagonist, you know, after his son. In 1616, the year of William's death, 31-year-old Judith will marry 26-year-old Thomas uh, Quinney, the son of a prominent local family. This was a big scandal because Thomas's lover, Margaret Wheeler, had given birth to his child just a month after the wedding. And then both Margaret and her baby would die during childbirth. Thomas was sentenced to perform penance before the congregation for three Sundays in a row because of this. He also had to donate five shillings to the poor. Uh, Okay. Hey, dickhead, you knocked up some poor peasant girl you never intended to marry and she died giving birth to your bastard. You're in big trouble, motherfucker. You have to say sorry three times over the course of three weeks and cough up five shillings. Backing up a bit now. Uh, Shakespeare completely disappears from historical records for the seven years following the birth of his twins in 1585 called the lost years by scholars. There are many theories about what was going on, you know, during this time. The main theory is that Shakespeare went into hiding after poaching from local landlord, Sir Thomas Lucy. Uh, Shakespeare allegedly poached deer off his, uh, off of his, off of, my God, off of his, oh my God, off of Sir Thomas's estate. I guess I could have said his estate. I don't know why I was trying to do his. <laughs> I don't think that's the thing you ever say. Uh, whose is that? Oh, that's his is animal. That's that's his is property. You gotta stay off of his is property. Anyway, um, yeah, he allegedly poached some deer off this guy's estate called uh, Charlecote Park, and then fled the city to avoid punishment after getting caught. And if you're thinking he fled for seven years over poaching, seriously, that's what I thought as well. I thought, how much trouble could you get in for shooting a deer on the property of some local noble? Well, it turns out quite a bit, a lot. 
A common punishment for poaching in England in the 16th century was to have your fucking ear cut off. Yeah, mutilation. I would go into hiding as well. Uh, the next most popular theory is that Shakespeare left to go work as an assistant schoolmaster in Lancashire. John Aubrey, a noted English historian and author born a decade after Shakespeare's death, wrote in 1681 that Shakespeare was a school teacher in the country. Others believe Shakespeare worked as a lawyer's clerk or as a soldier, or he may have been running the family business of glove making. And then there is the true crime theory I've teased out a few times, the Billy Shakes theory. In the late 1580s, young women living in both Stratford and London began to go missing. And then in the early 1590s, when women kept going missing, now some of their bodies started to turn up. Very mutilated bodies. Someone possibly a glove maker or someone who may have been a glove maker's apprentice, someone very skilled with a sharp knife, had skinned their hands perfectly as if the skin was being used as a really, really macabre glove. And the same sick fuck carved words into the stomach of at least one victim. Much ado about Satan. Sound familiar? Finally, one of the women was still alive when she was found and her dying words were Billy Shakes. Pretty suspicious. And this is almost never mentioned in sources. Why? Maybe it didn't happen. Or maybe the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust has been working for decades to erase it from the historical records. Moving along now. Historians believe that Shakespeare was definitely living in London by the mid to late 1580s and maybe killing. Uh, he may have worked initially as a horse attendant at some of the London theaters, tending to the horses of those who rode them or rode a carriage pulled by them to the theater. Horses who pissed and shit just outside the theater uh, while theater goers pissed and shit inside the theater and also outside the theater. So much night soil to be hauled. Again, so thankful to live in a world full of indoor plumbing. Seriously, I know I complain a lot about this or that, just like any other meat sack, but we do live in amazing times. Uh, there's evidence that by 1592, Shakespeare was working as an actor and playwright in London, had already written several plays. The September 20th, 1592 edition of the Station Stationer's Register it includes a reference to Shakespeare from another playwright named Robert Green. The Stationer's Register was a publication of the Stationer's Company of London, a tra uh, trade guild given a royal charter in 1557 to regulate the various professions associated with England's publishing industry, including printers, bookbinders, booksellers, and publishers. The company's charter gave it the right to seize illicit editions of published works and to bar the publication of unlicensed books and allow publishers to document their right to produce a particular printed work in the register, which thus constituted an early form of copyright law. So they're working on, you know, protecting intellectual property back then, which is cool. Robert Greene was an English prose writer who died in 1592. He was considered Shakespeare's most successful predecessor in blank verse romantic comedy. And he was one of England's first professional writers and one of the earliest English autobiographers. And in a way, one of England's earliest theater critics. Uh, Greene wrote about Shakespeare... There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes facto, uh, factotum, factotum, uh, in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. Uh, scholars differ on how to interpret all that shit. The general message is that Green was saying that Shakespeare was uh, reaching above his rank, 
not uh, fucking staying in his lane, not knowing his place, la la la, uh, in an attempt to uh, match other playwrights who were more well-known than him. So maybe this guy was jealous. Uh, according to Britannica, this quote appears in the book Greens, Groat's Worth of Wit, Bought with a Million of Repentance, 1592, uh, which was published after Green's death. A mutual acquaintance of the men, interestingly, prefaced the book with an apology to Shakespeare, which indicates that Shakespeare had powerful friends in the industry by the time of that book's publication. Uh, Green is most known for the plays Goonies, Predator, Total Recall, Gremlins, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and The Lost Boys, all of which were adapted to films in the 1980s. Uh, No, none of his plays had even close to the longevity of Shakespeare's works. Uh, Zero of them have made an impact on modern pop culture. (laughs) I would love it if somehow the fucking Lost Boys... Uh, was written in this uh, Shakespeare's time in England. Um, in the early 1590s, Shakespeare is thought to write the first of his plays we know today, Henry VI, Part One, Henry VI, Part Two, Henry VI, Part Three, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and Titus Andronicus. Uh, historians debate which play was written first. Shakespeare's first printed works would have been uh, would be sold in the early 1590s, two poems instead of plays, Venus and Adonis, in 1593 and the rape of lucrece in 1594 here's the first stanza from venus and adonis even (laughs) i don't know why i want to read all these in a weird voice but uh even as the sun with purple colored face had tamed his last leave of the weeping morn rose-cheeked adonis tried him to the chase hunting he loved but love he laughed to scorn sick-thoughted venus makes amain unto him and like a bold-facted suitor Gins to woo him. Probably sounds cooler when a Shakespeare expert reads it. Uh, and here's the first stanza of The Rape of Lucrece. Her lily hand, her rosy cheek lies under, cozening the pillow of a lawful kiss. Who, therefore angry, seems to part in sunder, swelling on either side to want his bliss, between whose hills her head entombed is, where, like a virtuous moment, she lies to be admired of lewd, unhallowed eyes. Dark poem. Uh, literally centered around a Roman noblewoman being raped. Dark crimes, uh, dark crime stories, you know, popular now, and they were also then. Also, does that poem add more credence to the Billy Shakes theory? I mean, who writes about rape? Anybody could. But would a rapist be more likely? A serial killing, hand-skinning rapist. While the original primary sources have been erased from the record somehow, secondary sources say that Billy Shakes likely was continuing to kill in London and also in Stratford. Bodies kept turning up in both places. Bodies missing the skin on the women's hands. Uh, Both those poems were dedicated to one Henry Rossley, the third Earl of Southampton and a patron of Shakespeare. The Shakespeare Birthplace Trust writes... To succeed at any artistic project in Tudor England, you would need a patron. A patron was a wealthy aristocrat who could find you work and support some of your living needs. The reason patrons were so crucial was because it was equally important for an artist to have a reputation amongst elite high society as it was for them to be talented. Writing plays would not be enough to ensure Shakespeare his reputation in the competitive world of Tudor England. The only way to achieve this reputation was to have someone who is a member of the nobility to vouch for you. Well... Luckily for Zippy Willie, it was considered fashionable for the nobility to vouch for and support artists. Quoting that birthplace trust again, it was the aim of most of the elites to gain political power by situating themselves or their family members in the royal court. 
And how is one to attract the attention of the queen and her courtiers? By being the epitome of the current culture. And there was another way it was useful for nobles to support artists. The theater was the general public's primary form of entertainment during this time, which would give the nobility a way to influence them, a large audience, right? Have their playwright make favorable references to them and unfavorable references to their opponents. Spin, baby, right? Get the narrative you want out there to the people. Henry Rossley came from a Catholic dynasty, which was controversial in England at that time, as we went over earlier. By the 1590s, Catholics not in favor in England. Rothley's father would be caught helping Jesuit Edmund Campion escape capture to avoid being executed. Henry's father would then be imprisoned in the Tower of London for a year and a half for his involvement in all that. And Henry would be raised by Queen Elizabeth's chief minister, Lord Burghley, to prevent him from being corrupted by his Catholic father. And he became a member of the royal court. Rothley loved literature and Shakespeare used this to, adva- uh, to his advantage to secure his patronage. Shakespeare addressed his poem, Venus and Adonis, to the right honorable Henry Rossley, Earl of Southampton, Baron of Titchfield. And then in 1594, he dedicated the Rape of Lucrece to Rossley as well. The love I dedicate to your lordship is without end. Whereof this pamphlet, without beginning, is but a superfluous m- <laughs> uh, moiety, the warrant I have of your honorable disposition, not the worth of many untutored lines, makes it assured of acceptance. What I have done is yours. What I have to do is yours, being part in all I have, devoted yours. Were my worth greater, my duty would shew greater meantime as it is. It is bound to your lordship, to whom I wish long life, still lengthened with all happiness, if I could have your lord's cock in my mouth every moment of every day, I would suck upon it. I don't know. He's just really fucking kissing his ass here. Uh, If you were wondering exactly what all that meant, I have no fucking idea. (laughs) Seemed to really get superfluous there with all the, uh, you know, ass kissing. Uh, Shakespeare scholars also argued that his reference to a beautiful boy and his sonnets were uh, references to Rossley. Right. Even the legendary Shakespeare had to kiss some ass to get his name in the history books. In 1594, the Lord Chamberlain's men is formed uh, after an outbreak of plague. Shakespeare and other actors from various companies formed the Lord Chamberlain's men under the patronage of, not surprised, Lord Chamberlain, a.k.a. Henry Carey. First Baron Hunston. Shakespeare would be a partial owner or shareholder in the Lord Chamberlain's men, as well as an actor and a playwright. I keep forgetting Zippy Willie was also an actor. Uh, he is thought to have worked as an actor for 15 years. Was he any good? We don't know. Uh, they didn't, they didn't uh, push, push record on the video camera. Uh, but if he did it for 15 years, he probably was pretty good. He was said to favor kingly parts with uh, uh, legend uh, having Hamlet's father as his farewell role fitting for the father of Hamnet. His acting company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, arguably the most important company of players, aka actors in London and in all of the UK, if not in all of Europe during the Elizabethan and Jacobean ages. An earlier incarnation of the acting company, a group of traveling thespians called the Hunston's Men, also patronized by Henry Carey, First Lord Hunston, can be traced from 1564 to 1567. Hunston became Lord Chamberlain in 1585. Another Lord Chamberlain's men company was uh, under his patronage and traceable up to 1590. Then in 1592, London theaters uh, closed down for well over a year due to fucking plague, all these plague outbreaks. They reopened in 1594 and a good deal of reorganization and amalgamation between various theater companies took place. A new version of Lord Chamberlain's men emerged from this reorganization. After uh, Chamberlain died in 1596, the company patronized now by his son, George Carey II, Lord Hunston. 
Uh, the company was renamed Hunston's Men a second time until Carey became Lord Chamberlain in 1597. The company went back now to be known as Lord Chamberlain's Men and uh, until King James I would take the throne in March of 1603. And then the company would fall under royal patronage and were renamed the King's Men. They'd gotten so popular, the king was like, I want them. Uh, give them to me. They're mine now. And the king got what he wanted. Imagine if current leaders, not just the guy in North Korea, could do that kind of shit. Right? Just here in the state. I like Amazon. Bezos, give thy business to me. <laughs> I like Stephen King. He now writes for the king. <laughs> I like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's, it's mine now. It's the King's Cinematic Universe. Uh, the King's Men Company, uh, only, uh, their only rival would be a company known as the Admiral's Men, later renamed uh, Prince Henry's Men. And the Admiral's Men were the acting company that produced the plays of Shakespeare's most noteworthy contemporary, uh, but really a predecessor, Christopher Marlowe. Marlowe was London's most esteemed playwright right before Shakespeare. Uh, he died young at the age of 29 in 1593, and he was the first to make a name for himself in writing blank verse, unrhymed poetry, often in iambic pentameter. Uh, and no one quite knows how he died. On May 30th, 1593, he had dinner with a man named Ingram Frizzer. A fight supposedly broke out between the two men over the bill, and Marlowe ended up getting stabbed to death over it. Some fucking argument over dinner. Uh, but plenty uh, don't think that happened. Too much to get into here or something. He faked his death, then began writing under the name of William Shakespeare. But there's not any proof of that. Uh, you know, past the, the timing of his death and some style similarities to the bod. Back to Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare was the uh, company's regular dramatist and wrote an average of two plays a year for about 20 years. Throughout his career, Shakespeare wrote 38 plays or 37 or maybe 39 and at least two narrative poems, 154 sonnets and assorted additional poems. And none of Shakespeare's original manuscripts exist today. The actors of the King's Company, what Lord Chamberlain's men again uh, evolved into, will collect his plays for publication after his death, and they were published in the first folio, the first collection of his work that contained 36 plays, but no poetry. And then later publications will include poetry and a couple uh, extra recovered plays. Shakespeare's first play is believed to have been written before or around 1592. In 1598, writer Francis Mears publishes a positive review of Shakespeare. His acting is not mentioned, but his writing is. Because of this review, we know that by this time, Shakespeare was well-known for his work and had produced at least a dozen plays, including the classics Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Merchant of Venice, Love's Labor's Lost, Richard II, and Titus Andronicus. Uh, the Lord Chamberlain's men had one of the best actors in London, Richard Burbage, fucking Dick Burbage, Dicky B, son of James, pioneer of London theater building. Uh, Dick lived from 1567 to 1619, and according to contemporary records, he was the first actor to play the role of Richard III, Romeo, Henry V, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, and King Lear. Uh, born three years after Shakespeare, he would also die three years after Shakespeare. The Bard's Brad Pitt, his Al Pacino, his Denzel Washington, or Leonardo DiCaprio, or whatever leading man you prefer. By the age of just 20, Richard was already a very popular actor. He was a member of the Earl of Leicester's company and remained with the company through its absorption into the King's Men Company. Also a shareholder in the Globe and Blackfriar Theatres. More about the Blackfriars Theatre a bit later. Uh, Richard was a very in-demand actor and performed not just in plays written by Shakespeare, but also plays written by others. Uh, when Shakespeare died, he left money in some of his possessions to a few friends, starting with Richard Burbage. And Burbage came from a family of performers. In addition to his dad being a producer and theater builder, his brothers were also actors. 
Uh, they were truly a theatrical family. To live is to be part of the theater. Uh, according to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, Shakespeare would write some of his most famous leading roles, such as Richard III, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, and Prospero, just for Burbage. Uh, the two men often performed together on the stage and even lived near each other in Shoreditch in the East End of London and would inspire and motivate each other, you know, collaborate together. Burbage was the uh, Robert De Niro to Shakespeare's Martin Scorsese, uh, the Beavis to Shakespeare's Mike Judge, the Ernest P. Worrell to Shakespeare's John Cherry. Forget those last two comparisons. Uh, the Lord Chamberlain's men were so renowned, they performed 170 times at court for Queen Elizabeth I and King James I during Shakespeare's lifetime. Now back to Zippy Willie's pals. Uh, another friend of William Shakespeare's uh, was Hamnet Sadler, right? We met or mentioned him earlier, his late son's namesake. Uh, these two likely grew up as friends. Hamnet's family lived very near the Shakespeare's in Stratford. They both got married, had kids around the same time. Uh, and Shakespeare, as I said earlier, named his twins after Hamnet and his wife, Judith. So very good friends. Hamnet spent his life in Stratford-upon-Avon and would die in 1624 and was recorded as a witness to Shakespeare's will. Another one of Shakespeare's friends was Ben Johnson, noted dramatist, poet, and literary critic, considered the second most important English dramatist during the reign of James I next to Shakespeare, most known for his plays Every Man in His Humor, The Silent Woman, The Alchemist, and Bartholomew Fair. Uh, the Alchemist is uh, one of the very few non-Shakespearean plays of this era that is still performed pretty commonly, uh, and you know, publicly, obviously. Uh, back, back to Shakespeare's acting company. From the summer of 1594 to March of 1603, the Lord Chamberlain's men stayed in London uh, in the fall of 1597. They did a little provincial tour. Then in 1603, they traveled outside of the city during an outbreak of plague in London. Uh, it was successful enough that the company went on tour in the summer and fall almost every year after that for a while. And it seemed like they were celebrated pretty much wherever they went, right? In the days before the internet, TV, radio, uh, they were in many ways the closest thing to rock stars that 17th century England had. All the world's a stage and we are its finest performers, you motherfuckers. Uh, backing up a bit, starting in the fall of 1599, when not on tour, the company moved to the Globe Theater, constructed by Richard and his brother, Cuthbert Burbage following the death of their father James and the subsequent loss of the lease that ended the run of his performance space the theater the owners of the company called housekeepers shared the profits of the productions they held acting companies were always looking for new material to perform and usually paid freelance writers on a piecework basis also known as a task basis Shakespeare though not a freelancer because he was a shareholder in the company uh, you know and wrote his plays for the company we don't know what cut he got, but we know he received, you know, a decent percentage of profit for the plays he wrote that were performed at the venue he partially owned. You know, probably a pretty fat cut considering he, uh, how much land he will buy towards the end of his life, as we'll learn soon. Most acting companies didn't want to sell their plays to publishers, especially if they were popular. Some companies sold their plays when they disbanded or were forced to shut down due to, again, the plague. Can't believe how much the plague was constantly disrupting the theater scene or when their plays were no longer popular. Once a writer sold their play to a company, they no longer had intellectual property rights to it. And that reminds me of how like big television and film studios used to operate decades ago. Right? They'd contract actors, actresses, directors, writers, etc. to only work for their company so that none of their competitors could profit off of their talent. Uh, you know, now it's different. Now a show creator might create a show for Netflix and sell their next show to HBO, then the one after that to Sony, or fund it themselves to their own production company to sell to, you know, whoever. Uh, plays were usually published in a quarto, 
large piece of paper divided into four pages, double-sided, eight pages in total. Some plays printed in octavo, which was 16 small pieces of paper. So very important back then to be concise with your words. You only had so much paper to write it all out on. About half of Shakespeare's plays were printed in quarto. Some of the uh, other plays issued in unauthorized volumes. If this happened, the acting company would then commission an authorized version. For example, a title page from a copy of Romeo and Juliet from 1599 called the Second Quarto states that this version is newly corrected, augmented, and amended as it hath been sundry times publicly acted by the right honorable the Lord Chamberlain, his servants. Circle back now to Shakespeare's family. Explain that coat of arms his dad got. As mentioned previously in 1596, John Shakespeare granted a coat of arms. The Shakespeare Birthplace Trust writes, during this time of increasing social mobility, a coat of arms was an essential symbol of respectability and they were highly sought after. It has been estimated that William might've paid as much as 20 pounds for it. Uh, between 1570 and 1630, there were 45 men with the title of gentlemen in Stratford, which meant they had an official crown-sanctioned coat of arms. Uh, the term gentleman denoted a status in the class system, that of a man who is entitled to bear arms, though not ranking among the nobility. So just one step kind of in between the nobility and the peasants, the gentlemen. Total population was 2,200 per night, 1595 records in Stratford, and 28 were born gentlemen, 17 applied for and received the title. So only 45 total gentlemen out of the, uh, you know, 2,000 plus people. Uh, after receiving the title, the Shakespeare's displayed their coat of arms above the entrance of their home, set it into windows, and carved it into furniture. They're fucking proud of that shit. Super big deal socially. And financially, since it lifted their status in the eyes of other people with more money, you know, got a more business. The grant documents shows uh, a drawing and description of the coat of arms says uh, gold on a bend, diagonal bar, sable, black, uh, a spear of the first, so gold, steel argent with a silver tip, and for his crest, a falcon, his wings displayed argent, which is silver, standing on a wreath of his colors, supporting a spear, gold, steeled as aforesaid, which is actually referenced to more silver, set upon a helmet with mantles and tassels. The motto that goes along with the coat of arms is non sans droit, which is French for not without right. Uh, to get an official coat of arms, you had to go through a very formal application process, submit your claim application to the required amount uh, and the required amount of money to the College of Arms, headed by the Earl Marshal. Think of it kind of like a, like a posh Department of Motor Vehicles, a bureaucratic institution that handled and still handles granting new coats of arms, genealogical research, and the granting of various pedigrees. You would submit design element considerations, and then the College of Arms will make the actual design, making sure your coat of arms doesn't match some other family, making sure it looks uh, regal and proper enough, has the right uh, symbolism, etc. All this sounded a bit too pompous to me at first, but I guess if they didn't do that, you know, uh, some idiot, some fucking Derek Skeet Skeet mullet would eventually toss up a coat of arms made of uh, an eagle with a dick for a head, you know, shitting on a hedgehog, or, you know, I don't know, fucking just bunch of huge tits all woven through the coat of arms. Just, oh, shit, yeah. Check out how fucking sick my new coat of arms looks. Uh, moving along to 1597 now. By 1597, Shakespeare had written and published 15 plays. Maybe, probably, difficult to date. Uh, most scholars have reached a general consensus for the plays written from 1588 to 1601, 1605 to 1607, and from 1609 onward. 1597, one Shakespeare... Uh, or Shakespeare for sure purchased New Place, the largest house in Stratford for 120 pounds. The glove maker's son, 
Now the fucking biggest fish in the Stratford Pond. Uh, recently discovered archaeological evidence from New Place shows that Shakespeare split his time between Stratford and London and in his final years spent more time in Stratford than scholars initially thought. Shakespeare came home often to visit family, use his library, and of course to write, and, you know, maybe do some other stuff. Maybe uh, to kill. In 1597, eight young women's bodies were found in Stratford, missing the skin off of their hands. And six bodies in the same condition found in East London. Carved into one of the women's stomachs were the words, To be or not to be Satan. Very similar, obviously, to what Shakespeare once wrote. And carved into the dirt next to a few of the bodies was an apparent calling card. Billy Shakes. Back to what we now know for certain about Shakespeare. Uh, During his time in London, Shakespeare lived with the Mountjoys, a family of French Huguenots. He testified on their behalf in a lawsuit in 1612. Shakespeare was friends with Christopher Mountjoy, the head of the family, who was a successful manufacturer of ladies' ornamental headpieces. Uh, Chris was apparently wealthy, made a lot of wig money. Fucking love it. The son of a successful glove maker. Ends up becoming close friends with a guy who makes a lot of dough selling wigs. Family had a large house at the corner of Silver and Monkwell Streets in the Cripplegate Ward of London. By 1598, the Lord Chamberlain's men's patrons had fallen out of favor with the Queen. And the theater's landlord, Gills Allen, planned to cancel their lease and tear down the building. Allen owned the land, but he didn't own the building. And when James Burbage died, uh, the lease to him became null and void, and he didn't have to uh, renew it, so bye-bye the theater. Also in 1598, while we don't have any existing letters written by Shakespeare, we do have one letter written to him uh, by a man named Dick Quinney, right? Uh, Well, Richard Quinney, but again, fucking dick. So many fucking dicks back in Shakespeare's day. Uh, Addressed from the Bell Inn in London. And it just said, to my loving good friend and countryman, Mr. William Shakespeare, deliver these. And he requested a loan of 30 pounds from Shakespeare. So not a real exciting letter, but something. Show Shakespeare had money to lend, or at least a dick thought he did. Uh, Dick Quinney's son, Thomas, uh, will eventually marry Shakespeare's daughter, Judith. December 28th, 1598, after the company leases a new theater location in Southwark, Cuthbert and Dick Burbage lead the initiative to take the theater building apart, load it onto barges, and ship the materials across the Thames. The company reconstructed the theater as fast as they could. Because the new site was on marshy land, they had to build a strong foundation. They dug trenches, filled them with limestone, built brick walls above the stone, raised wooden beams on top of the bricks. A lot of work. A funnel captured rainwater, drained it into the ditch, around the theater, and then out into the river. And that is, of course, where a lot of people would, you know, piss and shit. Uh, The new theater was 30 meters across, had 20 sides, which gave it a circular appearance, just like the original. The theater could hold up to 3,000 people, which may have been the same as the original. We don't have a firm number for the original capacity of James Burbage's The Theater. The best source I could find said between 1,500 and 3,000. So at worst, the globe was the same size as the theater, and at best, it was twice as big. In early 1599, Shakespeare personally contributed about 12.5% of the cost to building the theater based on some records. This again gave him a share in the company profits and a share in the theater if they were ever to sell it. Officially approved playhouses and officially approved acting companies had uh, only been around for about five years when the Globe was built. Lord Chamberlain's men, one of just two companies licensed to perform in London at that time. They had to build the Globe because they uh, couldn't use Blackfriars, another space built in 1596 by James Burbage. Uh, Burbage built Blackfriars as a replacement for the theater when he knew the lease was about to expire, but then the Blackfriars surrounding residents persuaded the government to ban him from using it for plays for a little while. Not sure why they did that. 
Blackfriars would survive uh, James's death, but the venue was much smaller than the theater with a capacity of only about 400. At the end of 1598, before James passed, the company had already decided to build a new theater, but the Burbages couldn't fund it because their inheritance was tied up in Blackfriars, a theater space, you know, they couldn't use. And that's what led them to form a consortium with Shakespeare and four uh, actors and then all became co-owners of the Globe. And the Globe would be very successful. So successful that by 1608, the company would have enough to also operate Blackfriars. Uh, they'd work things out apparently with the locals. And this was great because now they could truly perform year-round. The open-air Globe would sometimes have to shut down, you know, for the coldest months of the year. Uh, its roof did not completely cover it, didn't cover the yard, that standing room, only general admission area in front of the stage. But Blackfriars was uh, totally enclosed. Sadly, that theater will be destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. And then a version of it will be reconstructed in London in 2014, part of the rebuilt Globe Theater, now called the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. Uh, backing up again. By May of 1599, Shakespeare and his fellow co-owners were ready for the Globe's grand opening. Dick Burbage named the theater the Globe after the story of Hercules carrying the Globe on his back. A flag of Hercules was raised above the theater with the Latin motto, Totis mandis agit histroni... Ah, fucking something. Histrionum. I never never took Latin. Uh, Meaning all the world's a playhouse. I love it, and I agree. Uh, We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Shakespeare's words, spoken by the magician Prospero to Ferdinand in The Tempest. Hail Nimrod! Uh, Some of the early plays that were performed there were Henry V, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, Hamlet, Measure for Measure, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. Antony. Sorry, I think I added a slight H there. Uh, 1601, Shakespeare's father John dies. And there is also a Lillian bodies turning up with no skin on their hands. Coincidence? A cooling off period. Hard to say. William inherits his father's house on Henley Street and leases it out to tenants. The house is then divided into two properties. Uh, one of Shakespeare's tenants was his sister, Joan. The other was Lewis Hercox. I uh, wonder what kind of deal he gave Joan. Hopefully a good one. Pretty fucked up if she had to pay rent to live in her childhood home to her brother after their dad died. Uh, that'd be, you know, more than a little awkward. Uh, sis, we went over this. I only increased the rent to fair market value. If you don't like it, there are many other landlords in Stratford who would be happy to have you. Please don't make me kick you out of your old bedroom. Uh, Shakespeare buys more properties in Stratford in 1601 then purchased over 100 more acres of land near Stratford in 1602. 1603, after King James I took the throne, Lord Chamberlain's men becomes the king's men. Shakespeare will uh, walk dressed in royal livery at King James' coronation in 1604. He's a fucking big deal now. At least in London and in Stratford. He wasn't globally popular like he is now because, you know, communication limitations of the day. But very likely like the rock star of London now. 1605, Shakespeare purchased leases for several more pieces of real estate near Stratford for 440 pounds. These leases soon doubled in value and he earned about 60 pounds a year off of them. I had no idea that fucking Zippy Willie was a real estate tycoon. Shakespeare was business savvy and some historians think that his wise investments are what allowed him to write full time, right? If the theater had some lean months, you know, a bad year, there's another outbreak of plague, he's okay. In 1605, Shakespeare also purchases a uh, share of the Stratford ties, which meant he would be buried in the chancel of the church. Chancel or area around the altar uh, reserved for the burials of the most important people. And his remains still lie inside the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford upon Avon today, 
So baptized, married, and buried there. 1608, Shakespeare's mom, Mary, dies. He has her buried at the bottom of a privy just outside of town on one of his newly purchased properties. She and Willie didn't get along very well, apparently, in, uh, in his uh, you know her final years. And I guess he thought it'd be funny to be able to literally shit on her from time to time. And then once she'd become one with the night soil, he apparently used her to fertilize his garden. No, that's absurd. Uh, no, she was buried in a now unknown area of the Holy Trinity Church Cemetery. Shakespeare's first grandchild, Elizabeth Hall, only one born during his lifetime, born and baptized February 21st, 1608. Uh, 1609, Shakespeare's sonnets are published for the first time. Most uh, scholars date Shakespeare's sonnets as being written between 1593 and 1600. Shakespeare's sonnets, printed in quarto in 1609. The quarto contained 154 sonnets and ended with a long poem titled A Lover's Complaint. 126 sonnets are addressed to a fair youth and the remaining sonnets are addressed to a dark lady. Scholars have been spent, uh, you know, it's been spending hundreds of years trying to identify these people, which has led to all kinds of speculation about Shakespeare's possible romances, sexuality, and fidelity. Some think that the Dark Lady is an odd to the women killed by Billy Shakes. By 1609, the total body count estimated to be around 43 victims. Uh, fueling rumors of the Dark Lady being someone Willie had an affair with back on March 13, 1602, law student John Manningham made an entry in his commonplace book alleging that Shakespeare had been unfaithful. According to Manningham, uh, Shakespeare had overheard a, overheard a woman at a performance of Richard III making an appointment to secretly meet with Richard Burbage. And after hearing that, he allegedly went to the arranged meeting place and was entertained by this woman and was at his game, i.e., getting his dick fooled around with when Dick Burbage arrived. Uh, that source remains unverified. So who knows? Could be nothing more than gossip. Other scholars think that some of the, some of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, suggest an attraction for men, such as Sonnet 20. But again, just gossip. Uh, who knows if he was writing from his own point of view or taking artistic license when he would write passages like, a woman's face with nature's own hand, painted hast though, the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as if false women's fashion, an eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gliding the object whereupon it gazeth, a man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created till nature as she wrought thee fell a doting, and by addiction me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose nothing. And since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine by thy love and thy love's use, their treasure. I don't have a fucking clue what I just read. Uh, maybe he just thinks that some dudes are handsome, right? I don't know. I think Brad Pitt and Idris Elba are pretty handsome. Doesn't mean I want to stroke their spindles. Uh, sonnet 20 seems to be about love between two male friends. The sonnet has a line about one friend being equipped with one thing to my purpose, nothing. And continues, but since she, nature, pricked thee out for a woman's pleasure, mine be thy love and thy love's use their treasure. There are several male characters in Shakespeare's plays, Antonio and Sebastian in Twelfth Night, Antonio and Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice, and Achilles and Patroclus in Troilus and Cressida, or Cressida, who also depict seemingly romantic relationships. Uh, Shakespeare also explored bending gender roles in his plays. For example, in The Twelfth Night, the character Viola, dresses as a young man named Cesario, falls in love with Duke Orsino, 
Back then, these characters were usually played, uh, again, by teenage boys. Uh, interpreting any of that as proof of Shakespeare's sexuality, though, is, uh, you know, total speculation. If it was gay or bisexual, we'll likely never have conclusive proof, proof of that. Uh, we don't know much about his personal life in general, let alone any potential secret life. And, uh, you know, uh, his secret life also likely revolves, you know, around fucking murder. So much fucking murder. Uh, if he was homosexual and act on his homosexuality, he certainly kept that a carefully guarded secret. The punishment for sodomy or buggery, as it was known, was death. Attempted sodomy was punished by imprisonment and public humiliation. And there were all kinds of other laws around sex, not just homosexual sex either. Uh, but homosexual acts carried the most severe consequences. Circling back to his work now. Many believe that the sonnets were published about Shakespeare's con- uh, published without Shakespeare's consent. Uh, supporters of this theory argue that Shakespeare would have also given the printer an authoritative text and dedication, uh, but Shakespeare's sonnets has no dedication and the text is full of errors. Sonnets were published by Thomas Thorpe or Thope. Some argue that Shakespeare was betrayed and someone gave the poems to the publisher or a thief stole the poems for their own profit. Fucking bootleggers. Some believe that Shakespeare wouldn't have wanted the sonnets to be published because, again, you know, they discuss possible sexuality, maybe a hint of attraction towards men. Uh, the author of the dedication listed as T.T., thought to be Thomas Thorpe. I think it is Thorpe. The publisher, the begetter of the sonnets is listed as Mr. W.H. Some argue this was Henry Rossley. Others say it was one of the people listed in the dedication of Shakespeare's first folio. Some believe the begetter is the person who gave the poems to Thorpe. So a lot of the stuff, with, obviously, with Shakespeare, a lot of speculation. Seems like Shakespeare began his retirement around 1612. Uh, started spending, you know, more time in Stratford than in London. Curiously, 11 young women's dead bodies will be found in Stratford in 1612 and 1613, missing the skin on their hands. Only two will be found in East London. Coincidence or not? June 29, 1613, during a performance of Henry VII, the cannon that was used at the end of Act One uh, caught the Globe's Theater's thatched roof on fire, and the building was destroyed in about an hour. No one was injured except for one dude whose breeches, breeches caught on fire. He got his fucking breeches caught on fire. Uh, what a weird night for that guy. Went out to watch a little Shakespeare, came home with a, you know, burnt ass. February uh, 1614, the Globe Theater is rebuilt. This time it is uh, much more luxurious with a tile roof, less likely to burn, much less likely. Uh, the circular theater's roof still open in the center. Many people believe that Shakespeare died on his birthday, April 23rd, 1616. He would have been 52. Church records show he was buried in the chancel of Holy Trinity Church, April 25th. His exact cause of death unknown, believed he died of some illness as opposed to an injury or an accident. Decades later, in 1661, the vicar at Holy Trinity Church wrote in his journal, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too hard, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. But that account has never been verified. Uh, Some scholars believe Shakespeare died of typhus. Very curiously, the last young woman's body with no skin covering her hands was found in Stratford the month before his death, March of 1616. Carved into her stomach were the words... Billy Shakes is sick. Also, in his will, William Shakespeare left 61 pairs of gloves, quote, lady skin gloves, to his friend Dick Burbage, along with the instructions, wear them and remember our bloody fun, sweet Dickie. Remember the pain? Remember the screams? Much ado 
about Satan. We all know the Billy Shake stuff is fucking nonsense, right? <laughs> I hope all of us, but like two or three people know that by now. And I hope at least one of those people never finishes this episode. That would be so fucking great if someone were to walk away from this truly believing that William Shakespeare is suspected of being a late 16th, early 17th century serial killer known as Billy Shakes. Some fucking psychopath who skinned women's hands to make gloves. And there's been a huge cover-up to protect his legacy from the truth. Hey, you know what? If fucking QAnon can get some traction, maybe Billy Shakes can. Some kind of Stratford Illuminati, you know, situation dedicated to hiding all this to keep those tourism dollars rolling in. I picture them bringing this all up to people at work, you know, whenever Shakespeare is mentioned. <laughs> you know, he's probably a serial killer, right? Billy Shakes? You heard of Billy Shakes? Right? Fucking skinned women's hands over 60 carved words into some of their stomachs. The Stratford Birthplace Trust has been covering it up for centuries. Then when she walks away, people are like, what the fuck was Becky talking about? I, mean, I always thought she was weird, but she's completely out of her mind. I'm probably completely out of my mind for just wanting that to happen. Uh, by 1623, a monument of Shakespeare erected on the chancel wall uh, most likely existed uh, that is still there today. Pretty impressive monument. That really speaks to, again, just how famous Shakespeare was. Uh, strangely, Shakespeare's gravestone on the church grounds does not have his name on it. It has been believed to be his gravestone since 1656, located in the first uh, in a row of graves for his family. The gravestone reads, Good friend for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here, blessed by the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. All right. Uh, Shakespeare made Susanna and her husband John, the executors of his will, left them the majority of his estate, the new place wherein I now dwell. Uh, Susanna and John moved into new place after Shakespeare's death. Shakespeare probably left Susanna his papers. Historians assume that she was involved in the production of the first folio. And Hathaway was legally entitled to a third of his estate, but Shakespeare specifically left her his second best bed, which led to speculation that the couple was not happily married. Uh, but also, not much evidence to prove that they were having problems. Shakespeare's will stated, Item I give unto my weef. It's spelled weird. W-I-E-F. I give unto my weef my second best bed with the furniture. Furniture referred to curtains and the bed covers. Shakespeare Birthplace Trust writes, under medieval common law in England, a widow was entitled to one-third of her late husband's estate for her life or widowhood, even though it was not specifically mentioned in the will. In practice, however, most wives were mentioned, usually in terms of affection and trust, and were frequently made executrix of the will. The bequest of the second best bed, though, not in itself unusual. Uh, wills were not places for the expression of personal feelings always. The best bed, or indeed best of any type of item, uh, usually regarded as an heirloom to be passed to the major heir, which would have been his daughter, Susanna. Uh, in a different article, the trust writes, in Shakespeare's time, a bed was an expensive and luxurious item generally regarded as a valuable heirloom to be passed down the generations rather than given to a surviving spouse. In a world where social status was highly prized, people were keen to show off their wealth at every possible opportunity. It was not uncommon for the best bed to be kept in one of the rooms downstairs as a way of making sure your visitors could see uh, how well you were doing. It's fucking weird. Got to show off your bed. Uh, Judith got the short end of the stick with the will. She received 150 pounds in a silver bowl and would receive more money if she and her kids survived three more years. Doesn't seem as if her relationship with her dad was strained. Likely that Zippy Willie was just concerned about her husband who did not have a great reputation as we mentioned earlier. In November of 1616, Judith gave birth to her first son named Shakespeare. So, you know, probably again, not a strained relationship. 
Uh, sadly, Shakespeare and her other sons, Thomas and Richard, would all die as children. Fucking three kids. None of them made it to adulthood. And another dick in this episode. Every fucking fourth character is dick. Uh, Shakespeare left more money in some of his possessions to several friends. Richard Burbage, John uh, Heminges, Henry Condell, Thomas Combe, and Hamnet Sadler. Uh, Richard Burbage, John, not real positive on how to pronounce, Heminges. Uh, Henry Condell received 26 shillings, 8 pence to buy mourning rings. All three men will name their sons William. Uh, such a sign of respect, man. All three did it. Uh, according to author and Shakespearean scholar Stanley Wells, this will establish an informal contract for the three men to oversee the first folio as well. Burbage, though, would never be uh, part of the publication of the folio because he would die before it was published in 1619. Thomas Cohn would receive a sword from Shakespeare. Uh, Anne Shakespeare died seven years after her husband on August 6, 1623 at the age of 67. Shakespeare's four uh, grandchildren will all die without heirs. And because of that, he has no direct descendants alive today. His granddaughter, Elizabeth, never had any children despite being married twice. Judah's three sons died at an early age. However, his sister, Joan, and her husband, William Hart, did have many descendants. So there are people uh, who are related to Shakespeare indirectly. Shakespeare's first folio of comedies, histories, and tragedies published just months after Anne's death in November or December of 1623. Five men participated in the production. Their effort was headed by publishers William Blount and William Jaggard. Just uh, can't have too many Williams involved in a publishing of another William's works. Actors John uh, Heminge and Henry Condell undertook the effort to collect the 36 plays for publication, and Isaac Jaggard printed about 1,000 copies for distribution. The full title is Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies Published According to the True Original Copies. Hemages and Condell used original prompt books, quartos, and original notes. And this was the first printed folio that contained only plays. The folio contained the first good text of, you know, a bunch of stuff. Uh, the plays were categorized by comedies, histories, and tragedies. About a thousand copies are made, of which 230 still exist today. Uh, pretty impressive for a book that old. In 2020, one of these copies in excellent condition sold at an auction for just under $10 million. Most expensive literary work ever. So if you have one laying around, you might want to cash it in. Uh, corrections were made during the printing of the first folio, making each copy unique. Back in 1623, these folios were sold for a pound each if they were purchased bound. Uh, that was enough back then to buy 44 loaves of bread. The price went down to 15 shillings if they were unbound. And the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust owns three copies of the first folio. So sitting on some serious fucking cash there. Uh, three copies of the first folio have been stolen as well. One was stolen from Williams College, Massachusetts in 1940. One from John Ryland's library at the University of Manchester in 1972. And one from the University of Durham in 1998. Uh, only two have been found. Williams College actually got their copy back the same year it was stolen. This is, uh, this is not a good uh, theft. July, July of 2010, a man named Raymond Scott convicted of handling a stolen copy of the first folio. Scott had a lengthy criminal record. He'd been convicted 23 times, had three aliases, and was in about 90,000 pounds of debt. He was arrested in 2008 after taking the folio to the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. and telling a tale of a Cuban officer whose mom kept the book in her home for many years. He took the book to Folger's for authentication, said his friends in Cuba gave him the book. I thought, you know, I don't know. It's an old Shakespeare book. Maybe it's worth some money. And then the book was identified as the copy of the folio stolen from Durham, Cathedral Library in 1998. 
the book, an early English translation of the New Testament, and a piece of a poem by Geoffrey Chaucer were all stolen, but only the folio was recovered. And Scott left the folio in Washington, went back to the UK, and then was arrested. Then in March of 2012, Raymond Scott found dead in his prison cell two years into an eight-year sentence. In December of 2013, a coroner ruled that Scott was murdered by the ghosts of one Billy Shakes. Or died of suicide. Or that. Uh, Shakespeare's second folio was issued in 1632 and a third folio in 1663. And worth quite a bit less than the first. An original printing of the second folio sold in 2016 for just over $177,000. Third folio worth more than the second because a fire in London in 1966 destroyed a bunch of them. Only two exist in private collections now, and each is valued to be uh, at least a million and a half bucks. 1642, Parliament orders all theaters in London to be closed down. Why? Not the plague this time. Uh, Puritanism. Puritans had taken over Parliament, and they felt that the theater was full of, quote, stage plays representative of lascivious mirth and levity. Too much fun! Too much Lucifina. Shut it all down. Fucking Puritans. Some of the most fun-hating people who ever lived. Uh, No longer able to be used, Shakespeare's globe was destroyed in either 1644 or 1645, and the land was sold. Such a shame. Shakespeare's daughter, Susanna, dies July 11th, 1649, buried beside John at the Holy Trinity Church. Uh, Shakespeare's daughter, Judith, buried February 9th, 1662, at the age of 77. Interesting that both his daughters lived long enough to see their dad become the most famous playwright in all of England, in all the world. Uh, The most famous man, or at least most famous non-royal man in England, and also saw the entire theater industry in England completely shut down by zealots. Like, how weird. Uh, What they must have thought of the globe being destroyed and all of England now forbidden to watch performances of their father's plays. Uh, Today's book-banning zealots, right, uh... Uh, spiritual cousins of these Puritans. Hope more people speak up against them. Uh, 1970, American actor and director Samuel Wanamaker uh, established the Shakespeare's Globe Trust, which would allow him to reconstruct the globe. It would take almost 30 years for them to get permission, funding, and finish historical research. And the Globe Theater would open in 1997, just one street away from its original location. As I mentioned, its sister theater, Blackfriars, reconstructed in London in 2014 on the same property. And with that, let's hop out of this historical timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, And now let's look into claims that William Shakespeare was not the guy we think of today. Not the man who wrote all those amazing plays. Uh, And let's do that after a very special additional sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Whipple Chill Shakespeare Edition. Life can be so up, you know? Sometimes you need to escape all the madness of your life and get yourself down to the theater, sink into a cozy seat, and quietly enjoy the madness of somebody else's drama. Sometimes you can't get to the theater. And on those occasions, how about you make the theater come to you with Whipple, a chill Shakespeare edition. Every can is packed with 60% drama, 
30% comedy, 40% tragedy, 20% nightshade, 0% night soil, 3% bikini burger, 14% mandrake juice, 100% opium, 5% Romeo, 10% Juliet, and every can is much ado about Whipple, but chill. Bring the peaceful entertainment of theater to you with Whipple, but chill. To drink or not to drink, that is not the question. There is only drinking, for we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and Whipple, chill, makes those dreams so deliciously wet. Whipple's a proud subsidiary of Bear Evil Incorporated. God, sounds delicious. Wish I had a can to sink into right now. But alas, I have the question of Shakespeare's true authorship to address. Uh, approximately 150 years after Shakespeare died, people started to question if he actually wrote his plays. This theory mostly came from the fact that there's very little info and primary sources about Shakespeare's life. The Holy Trinity Church and Stratford government recorded his existence but, you know, no records of his literary career. Historians now began to uh, question how a man with only a basic education could become such a talented writer. Shakespeare never received any higher education that we're aware of, unless it somehow took place during those forgotten years. And his name, you know, never made it into any school attendance records. How could he write poems and plays to demonstrate a mastery of the English language, knowledge of politics, laws, and of the court? Doubters now began to believe that the real William Shakespeare in historical records was nothing more than a successful businessman involved in a lot of real estate deals. Of course, other famous playwrights also have few records of their lives and also came from humble beginnings like Shakespeare. And supporters of Shakespeare, in fact, being the Shakespeare uh, we think of today, also argue that Stratford's new grammar school would have provided a plenty good educational foundation for any writer. Also, sometimes genius just strikes people. Doesn't matter what school they went to or what family they were born into. You know, Michael Jordan didn't have some special training in basketball that others weren't privy to. He wasn't born into some genetically superior basketball family. He was just born with a special kind of competitiveness, a certain fire inside of him that made him work his ass off to get so much better than his, uh, his peers. Natural born talent, plus lots and lots of determination and hard work, focused hard work. Shakespeare, by all accounts, by virtue of so many close friends, naming their children after him is just one example was a special dude. Maybe questions of his authorship arose because some people just can't understand that, right? Maybe because they're not that special. They're not exceptional and they have a hard time recognizing it in others. I don't know. That's just my speculation. So if Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, then who did? Some alternative Shakespearean authors proposed over the centuries are Sir Francis Bacon, uh, Shakespeare's contemporary, Christopher Marlowe, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, Sir Walter Raleigh, English poet and scholar, John Donne, and even Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, ever since the 19th century, many people, and not just crazy people, have believed in these alternative author theories. Uh, Henry James, Sigmund Freud, Mark Twain, Helen Keller, Charlie Chapman, many others have all doubted that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Uh, there are thousands of books and articles dedicated to debunking Shakespeare and proposing alternative authors now. Uh, Helen Keller once wrote that whoever penned Shakespeare's plays and sonnets was a profound reader, a learned scholar, a courtier, a lawyer, and a traveler. And none of those attributes match the historic facts of Shakespeare's life, Keller argued. And uh, she surprises me here. I mean, people, so many people doubted that Helen could possibly be very intelligent, 
you know, uh, for so much of her life due to her being blind and deaf, but she proved them wrong. And, you know, uh, they thought it was, you know, possible for someone like her, uh, to write the way that she wrote. Why would she put, uh, limitations on someone else? Why think that whoever wrote what he did has to have been this or that? Why couldn't they just been someone who, I don't know, had an amazing memory or a very curious mind. Talk to people who are well-traveled, maybe talk to people who are, you know, more educated. We also don't know for a fact that he, uh, you know, wasn't well-read. We don't know where he was for seven years. And we don't know what he did for most of the rest of his years since we don't have a diary or, you know, comprehensive biography written by some contemporary. Uh, the first anti-Stratfordian theory appears in print in 1785. James Wilmot, a reverend and scholar, first formally presented the idea that Shakespeare did not actually write his plays and poems. Uh, Wilmot was also uh, completely unknown outside of his immediate circle of friends in his lifetime. And his niece, Olivia Sayers, was the one to bring his theories to public attention. And she was a known imposter who got caught pretending to be English nobility, some princess of Cumberland. Uh, she was a fraud who spent uh, most of her life bouncing in and out of debtors' prisons. So the whole Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare angle was launched by a known con artist. An early 19th century, you know, Anna Delvey, a, a Clark, it'll be grand, darling, real peach Melba kind of night, Rockefeller. Uh, Constance Grady, writing for Vox, has this to say about it all. The anti-Stratfordian argument is romantic and compelling. It's also based on shoddy scholarship. Most damningly, it's a fundamentally classist argument. Uh, in 1781, Wilmot attempted to write a biography about Shakespeare, maybe. Uh, he visited Stratford-upon-Avon, maybe. You'll see why I'm saying that in a little bit here. And other places Shakespeare might have visited. Searched all the libraries around the area, searched for Shakespeare's correspondence, and uh, what he found astonished him. There was no record anywhere to indicate that William Shakespeare of Stratford ever read a book or wrote a letter. He couldn't find handwritten notes, signatures, letters, nothing. Based on that lack of evidence, he concluded that Shakespeare couldn't have written his plays. And he suspected the plays were written by Sir Francis Bacon. But again, this is just some random dude, not a noted historian or scholar or investigator, just some guy who was like, can't find a letter. Uh, from anybody saying that, uh, you know, hot damn, Zippy Willie sure is a good reader. So therefore, couldn't have uh, wrote those plays. Boom, Mike dropped. Uh, to me, this all means nothing. Wilmot never shared his ideas to a wide audience. Uh, again, his con artist niece shared his supposed ideas. And also, allegedly, Wilmot's friend, James Corton Cowell, uh, first presented this theory to others in his lectures in 1805, or maybe not. This whole thing might not be true. These supposed lectures were not discovered until over a century later in 1931, and according to Shakespeare's scholar James Shapiro, these lectures most likely were made up in an attempt to support the Francis Bacon theory, which was gaining popularity at that time. Uh, these lecture notes use language that was out of fashion in the early 19th century uh, and use information that was not known until after 1805. So the bullshit theory supposedly invented by Wilmot and spread by his niece and friend, all of that might be nonsense. All of it might have been made up over a century later by some other fucking con artists and conspiracy theorists, right? God, they have been a problem since long before the internet, manufacturing source documents for centuries. The anti-Stratfordian theory became popular in 1857 when Delia Bacon and William H. Smith published books arguing that Shakespeare was actually Francis Bacon and the books were a hit, right? Scandals, they so often sell. Uh, Delia, I think it's Delia, not Delia, uh, not related to Francis, by the way. Noted author Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, wrote the introduction to the Bacon book. And then Mark Twain wrote that Bacon's book had him convinced that Shakespeare was not the author of his works. Man, a lot of smart people buying this. Why? 
Well, for some context, amongst the academic crowd uh, in the mid-19th century, this was the heyday of higher criticism, where everyone was questioning the true authorship of all kinds of shit. Who really wrote the Bible? Who really wrote the classic works of antiquity? Who really wrote Shakespeare? You know, questioning all of this was uh, very fashionable, very trendy. So quite possible that a lot of smart people, you know, got swept up in that. The main basis of Delia's argument, and it is Delia, I don't know why I was saying Delia, uh, was that uh, how do we not know more about the personal life of man whose works we know so much about? The disparity between knowing little about the man, so much about his work, that essentially was her main argument for Shakespeare not being Shakespeare. And that doesn't bother me that we don't know a lot about him. You know, maybe, maybe he was just a private guy. Maybe he didn't care what people knew about his personal life. He wanted to let his work speak for him. Maybe he was happy letting, uh, you know, uh, his fucking plays do the talking. Also, he lived well before the age of tabloids when journalists were not constantly speculating on the lives of the rich and famous. Uh, that just wasn't a thing yet. Francis Bacon and contemporary playwright Christopher Marlowe are still the main candidates for uh, true authorship, but many other scholars suspect that Shakespeare was Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. This theory was first proposed in uh, 1920 by author J.T. Looney in the book Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Uh, de Vere lived from April 12, 1550 to June 14, 1604. He was a poet, patron of the theater, uh, you know, in addition to being uh, suspected of being Shakespeare. There is evidence that the Earl was known to have written plays, but no surviving examples of these plays. Looney argued that there was biographical similarity between the Earl uh, and uh, Hamlet, and that Oxford's poems were similar to Shakespeare's earlier works. Uh, the Earl's acknowledged poems were written during his youth, and Looney argued that these were the prelude to his work as an adult, and that his adult period started in 1593 with the publication of Venus and Adonis. Additionally, there is some interesting timing with his known work. Oxford poems stopped being produced when Shakespeare mysteriously reappeared from his seven lost years. Members of the Shakespeare Oxford Society, which was founded in 1957, argue that Earl de Vere had extensive knowledge of aristocratic society and education and wrote in a style similar to Shakespeare. Again, they argue that Shakespeare didn't have enough education to write the way he did. Uh, the people who believe the Earl was Shakespeare are called Oxfordians. Uh, they argue that the Earl used a pen name because of the politically provocative nature of the plays, and he didn't want to be looked down upon by nobility for writing plays. And the theater was strange in that way. Yeah, you could be a rock star if you were you know, a hot actor or playwright, uh, but also the work itself was seen as being beneath the nobility. Opponents of this theory, and there are many, note that the Earl died in 1604 and some of Shakespeare's greatest plays like King Lear, The Tempest, and Macbeth were published after his death. At the end of the day, there is no real evidence to debunk Shakespeare. It's all conjecture. Uh, and Stratfordians, the supporters of Shakespeare, note that there is evidence that points to his authorship, such as printed copies of plays and sonnets with his name on them, theater company records with his name, and comments from contemporaries. Why would the giant Holy Trinity Church honor Shakespeare as well if he wasn't Shakespeare? Uh, most Shakespeare scholars do not buy into the anti-Stratfordian theory. Former Shakespeare professor Stephen Marsh wrote for the New York Times, the idea has roughly the same currency as the faked moon landing does amongst astronauts. And finally, Shakespeare scholar Irving Irvin Mattis wrote for The Atlantic, there is more about Shakespeare in contemporary materials than about most others in English Renaissance theater. Uh, there are written references to Shakespeare. His name is written on plays again, and dates just don't line up with the other author candidates. Uh, so yeah, so I'm going to choose to believe that Shakespeare is in fact Shakespeare. 
a man born April 23rd, 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, son of a glove maker, guy who grew up in a normal family, guy who received good but not noteworthy education, guy who married young, had three children with his wife, guy who may have shared all kinds of personal details that, uh, you know, ended up just getting lost to history for whatever reason. Maybe they burned up in a fire. Maybe they got lost in some attic where they just rotted away. Good. Sometimes mystery is better than knowing. Just like we can endlessly reinterpret as universal timeless characters and make them relevant today, make them look how we want them to look, sound how we want them to sound, really make them our own. Well, we can do the same for Zippy Willie. Maybe Shakespeare was a fucking goofball. Maybe he was a romantic. Maybe he had a fiery temper. Maybe he skinned women's hands after fucking murdering them along the River Thames. Hmm. I hope not. Maybe he was the life of the party. Maybe he was a gentle soul. Maybe he loved the spotlight. Maybe he was reclusive. Maybe he really wanted to be an epic leading man like his buddy Richard Burbage only wrote because he didn't have the looks or voice or talent for that. Maybe he only ended up as a playwright because he was a super shitty glove maker. Who knows? Uh, What we do know is that his stories are amazing. If they weren't, they would have never stood the test of time. If they weren't, his body of work wouldn't have turned his hometown into the second biggest tourist attraction to all of England. I find Shakespeare's story uh, so inspirational. A man who didn't come from extreme wealth, right? A guy who never went to university, a guy who just had an extraordinarily creative mind, who worked hard, wrote story after story, year after year, produced works that have inspired people for centuries. Maybe some creative type listening will be the next Shakespeare. Someone, anyone who will make a massive mark in history in some way. Someone who who will influence others for centuries to come, right? If that's you, go get it, Meat Sack. Go fucking create, build that legacy. Hail Nimrod. You know, you don't need some degree. I mean, it's great if you have that. If you've earned that degree, good for you. It is important. Education is important. But it also, you know, doesn't mean if you don't have it, you can't do amazing things. Like write timeless plays. I love that. Uh, And now, much ado about today's top five takeaways time suck top five takeaways number one we don't actually know with 100 percent certainty when shakespeare was born or how he died historians guesstimate uh that he was born on april 23rd 1564 in stratford upon avon his baptism recorded april 26th of that year traditionally baptisms occurred within three days of birth and historians believe he died on his birthday in 1616 probably of an illness Number two, Shakespeare was the primary dramatist for the Lord Chamberlain's men, later the King's men, for about 20 years. He produced about two plays a year. Among the list were classics like Romeo and Juliet, Richard III, Julius Caesar, and over 30 others. He also wrote 154 sonnets, which many believe were illegally published without his consent. Shakespeare's plays were compiled into the first folio produced by his friends in 1623. This is perhaps one of the most important documents in literary history. Without it, Shakespeare's memory may have been lost to time, just like the exact nature of the man behind the plays has been lost. Number three, Shakespeare had an interesting and maybe somewhat scandalous personal life. At age 18, he married a woman eight years his senior, who was also pregnant before the wedding. There is no evidence to show that the two were deeply in love, but also no evidence they weren't. Shakespeare most likely did care for his wife, Anne, and their two surviving children and provided for them with his high-paying writing career. Shakespeare left Anne his second best bed in his will. Many consider that a slight, considering she was entitled to a third of his estate. But in many many cases, the second best bed was actually the marital bed. 
Uh, however, Shakespeare didn't write about Anne with terms of endearment, as was common in wills of that time, and he didn't explicitly state that she would receive the money she was entitled to. So, a little weird. Instead, his daughter, Susanna, seems to have inherited most of her father's estate. Number four, Shakespeare's contemporary and friend Ben Johnson wrote that Shakespeare was not of an age, but for all time. How true his words have been. After 400 years, Shakespeare is still widely known and studied around the world. And number five, new info. Let's talk about some words and phrases invented by Shakespeare to further illustrate how powerfully he's influenced the English language. Shakespeare is credited with either inventing or introducing over 1,700 English words. Historians believe he invented these words by combining other words, making nouns, verbs, or adding prefixes and suffixes. The Shakespeare Birthplace Trust provides an A to Z list of words attributed to Shakespeare, and here's a few examples. Alligator, bedroom, bukkake, critic, downstairs, eyeball, fashionable, finger-blasted, gossip, hurry, inaudible, jaded, kissing, lonely, manager, nervy, obscene, pegging, puppy dog, questioning, rant, skim milk, teabagging, traditional, undress, varied, worthless, yelping, zany, and bikini burger. And maybe he didn't invent bukkake, finger blasting, pegging, teabagging, and bikini burger, but he did introduce the rest of those terms. Uh, Shakespeare also invented many popular phrases still used today. Too much of a good thing from As You Like It. I have not slept one wink from Cymbeline. Own flesh and blood from Hamlet. It's Greek to me from Julius Caesar. That's how they do it in Hollywood from the Peanut Butter Diaries. Jealousy is the green-eyed monster from Othello. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Shakespeare has been sucked. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Logan Keith producing today. The Art Warlock, Olivia Lee, did a great job. Preliminary research. I had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, going down tons of side roads and looking further into and verifying the facts that she laid out. I uh, took a Shakespeare class in college. Kind of appreciated it. Wish I would have understood then how truly historical his life was. Oh, well. Now, now I get it. It's better late than never. And how about that's enough credits today? I don't know that I need to lay them out every week. Uh, probably not. Let's tease out next week's show. Uh, next week, the Space Scissors have voted in the lynching of Emmett Till. Uh, Going to be a very intense episode. Emmett Till was a young black teenager from Chicago who came to visit family near the little unincorporated community of Money, Mississippi in the summer of 1955. On August 24th of that year, Emmett was standing with his friends outside a grocery store. He reportedly bragged that he had a white girlfriend back in Chicago, maybe, uh, it's up for debate. And his friends dared him to ask the white woman behind the counter to go on a date with him. Emmett then went to the store, bought some bubble gum, and was heard saying goodbye to the woman on his way out. Perhaps uh, witnesses are kind of all over the place. Uh, witnesses definitely don't know what happened between the two in the store. Carolyn Bryant, the cashier and co-owner of the grocery store who interacted with Emmett, would testify later that he grabbed her hand and waist, asked her on a date, told her he'd been with other uh, white women, and some, uh, uh, she kind of changed her version of events uh, several times over the years. And sometimes she uh, inferred that he did much more than that uh, with his words. Also, allegedly, Wolf whistled at her as she left the store, and that was it. 
Roy Bryant, Carolyn's husband, returned home from a trucking job a few days later, heard about the alleged incident, and lost his fucking mind. Thought he would seem cowardly if he didn't retaliate. So on August 28th, Roy and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, with some accomplices, kidnapped young Emmett Till from his uncle's home. Uh, pretty interesting that uh, for a guy who didn't want to appear cowardly, uh, has to take a few guys with him to kidnap a 14-year-old. How is that not the height of cowardice? Uh, they drove Emmett to a farm owned by one of their family members, beat him, then took him to the banks of the Tallahatchie River where he was shot in the head. Then the men, still not done, tied a cotton gin fan to his neck with barbed wire and threw his body in the river. Emmett's body was found three days later. His mother, Mammy Till Mobley, chose to have an opened casket funeral and with that, essentially kicked off the civil rights movement. Uh, so all that, uh, it's a big story we're going to be talking about next week on Time Suck. And uh, right now, I have a very special Time Sucker update to get into. And for those of you who do not like today's change in format, well, the regular edition of the updates will be back next week. So don't even worry about it. Uh, big thanks to BetterHelp for partnering with us on this special segment. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Now, welcome to this special edition of Time Sucker Updates. I'm going to share some advice given to me by Courtney Cope, licensed marriage family therapist and principal clinical operations manager, and David Yadish, licensed therapist and senior clinical operations manager, both at BetterHelp. I chatted with them, uh, both, you know, Courtney and David, at great length to ensure that this advice is in line with healthy practices for better mental health. This is not me playing therapist. Uh, no one needs that. Today, we're going to answer one of the questions we got about relationships from one of our listeners. Here we go. How do you begin your entire life over? So how do you begin your entire life over after divorce and losing your business? As a child of divorce and someone who has gotten divorced, uh, I know all too well how divorce can suddenly and dramatically alter your life's trajectory. There are so many emotions wrapped up in a divorce or significant breakup. The circumstances are going to be different for everyone because there are so many different reasons you and your significant other may have decided to go your separate ways. Uh, to start, allow yourself the time to feel all the feels. Have those days when you just cry. Have those days when you are super angry. Grieve the loss of the relationship and all that it represented, your partner, your friend, your family, your life plans. It's okay to feel every last feeling. You can't really move forward if you're shoving your feelings down. It can be wildly overwhelming to think about every single thing you have to start over on. Finding a new source of income, thinking about falling in love again. You can make yourself crazy thinking about all of the things you have to do all over again. And it could be overwhelming to think about all of that at once. Even if you are someone who thrives in chaos or when your back is against the wall, there's just no way you're going to be able to do everything all at once. So it would be wise to create a plan full of small, manageable steps so that you have some short-term goals that will get you to the long-term goals. Divorce can be so devastating that even the smallest of accomplishments can feel like a massive victory. Uh, another suggestion would be to take a vacation. And what do I mean by that? Well, if your life affords you the opportunity to break your daily routine and get out of Dodge, then step away for a few days to gather your thoughts and process those initial emotions. If that's not an option, which in this case of losing your business, as well as your marriage, means it probably isn't, Try to break your daily routine and move things around. Can you add in a walk with a friend? Can you have lunch outside in a park for a change? Can you meditate for five minutes every day? A vacation doesn't have to involve travel or even a full day off. What are some small things 
you can give yourself that cost nothing, uh, but will help you march forward? Can you find a song that fires you up? Listen to it every day to set the tone of your day. Create a motivational soundtrack. And keep in mind, no matter how hard this is, you will get through it. Trust yourself. Believe in your willpower to come out stronger. Find family and friends who are good sources of support. Keep the people in your circle tight. Make sure you surround yourself with positive influences. It doesn't cost anything to enjoy the beauty of what's around. Download a free app, a free show, something that distracts you, makes you laugh. Focus on small moments of pleasure. Okay, I think that's great advice. And uh, that also wraps up this special edition of Time Sucker Updates. A big thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp, and to Courtney Cope, Principal Clinical Operations Manager, and David Yaddish, Senior Clinical Operations Manager, BetterHelp. Uh, Courtney Cope and David Yaddish's input is general psychological information. Based on research and clinical experience, it's intended to be general and informational in nature. It does not represent or indicate an established clinical or professional relationship with those inquiring for guidance. Their feedback is in response to a written question, and therefore, there are likely unknown considerations given the limited context. Also, just because you might hear something on the show that sounds similar to what you're experiencing, beware of self-diagnosis. Diagnosis is not required to find relief, and you'll want to find a qualified professional to assess and explore diagnoses, if that's important to you. If you or your partner are in crisis and uncertain of whether you can maintain safety, reach out for support. Uh, Crisis hotlines, local authorities have a safety plan. That can be done with a therapist, too. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Glad we got to do a little special ending there. Yeah, somebody who has uh, gone through a divorce and, you know, raised in a divorce household, married to someone else, uh, raised in a divorce household. Uh, such a common experience. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fucking <laughs> pretty traumatic. So, hopefully that, uh, you know, gave somebody something to, to focus on. Little, little baby steps. Focus on the little victories. Don't overwhelm, overwhelm yourself with trying to tackle everything. Uh, but yeah, but thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time suck each week and the secret suck each week for space lizards. Uh, please don't start killing young women and skinning their hands to make gloves like William Shakespeare, a.k.a. Zippy Willie, a.k.a. Billy Shakes, almost fucking certainly did. Just focus on poetry and plays and uh, iambic stuff, you know, which is going to help you to keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. For my Summer Shakespeare Theater audition, I'll be reciting Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. That's the respect that makes calamity of so long life For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, 
the pangs of deprived love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death? The undiscovered country, from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia, nymph in my orsons, be all my sins remembered. How much fucking longer would you think time's like would last if I talk like that all the time? Two weeks? Three? Have a great week, everybody. Except you. You know who I'm talking about, you fucking piece of shit.